Welcome, bienvenue, konnichiwa, ni hao, jambo, marhaba. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again, episode 203 on Sunday, the 10th of October 2021. I'm Armist Phil. I'm Armist Ben. And I'm Armist Matt. And we've got Steve Whitehead here from the Sporting History Podcast. How are you, Steve? G'day, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Oh, the pleasure's all ours. We, uh, we love talking about ancient history. We do quite a bit on ancient history over here on the Army Shink, don't we? Yeah, it's uh, endlessly yeah. fascinating. <laughs> it is, yeah. And uh, you have your own podcast. Uh, if you're watching on the YouTube, you can see the uh, the link there. It's, uh, what is it, www.spartanhistory.com, spartanhistorypodcast.com. That's right. That's and correct. how long have you been going now? Yeah, guys, yeah, a little bit uh, over two years now. Started off in November of, uh, sorry, almost two years now, 2019. We started off and um, yeah, just hitting 30 episodes out now. So, yeah, things are going well. So about once a month they come out, generally? Yeah, once a month. Look, I, I don't really take it that seriously. And to be honest, when I first started the podcast, the only person I thought would ever listen to it was myself. So <laughs> I was just really, you know, beholden to what I felt like doing. Then people started listening and sending in comments and started requesting some things. I thought, oh. Christ, you know, I'm going to have to take this a little bit more seriously. So, yeah, look, once a month ostensibly, but, um, yeah, you never know. I mean, what, why Sparta? Yeah, I mean, you, you could have picked all sorts of subjects from sort of the ancient world. What what sort of produces fascination with you with Sparta particularly? Mm, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm not academically trained at all. I did do a little bit of the arts in, in university, never completed a degree, but um, I think my first thought was to go for, for Roman history and go for the most popular one. But there were a series of podcasts that were already out in the universe. Mike Duncan's um, History of Rome, oh, first and foremost. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, if you're going to go into Roman history, you're going to want to be competing against that. And I thought, I'm not going to go up against that guy. He's too, too popular. And look, Sparta has always been a fascination of mine. Um, my, my firstborn son has the name Leonidas. So I'm a, <laughs> a bit of a, it was a big, big name getting over the line when your partner wanted a name like James or George. Getting Leonidas was a really tough one over the line. But I'm a salesman by vocation, so I thought, look, <laughs> the Spartan story is one that's not told told in its whole. It's told very popularly through, um, you know, Frank Miller's graphic novel and um, Jack Snyder's movie. But uh, the whole story had never been told, so I thought there was a real opportunity to sort of yeah tell the story from the beginning and work right through to what other people know. Wow, so in your podcast you're going, so, I mean, what sort of sources are we, are we reliant on? Is it mainly Herodotus or is there other Greeks that we've got information on the Spartans from? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Um, Herodotus, obviously, being the father of history, he takes up the, the Spartan narrative at the point where they were uh, the preeminent military power of Greece alongside Athens being the preeminent naval power. Uh, but the Spartan history and the story goes back, uh, anywhere up to 800 years before that, if you look back to, to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, 
Uh, the Spartans play a fairly pivotal role in there, obviously, with, with Helen, uh, the princess of Sparta and Menelaos, the um, Mycenaean king who, who who marries her and later follows her to Troy after she abdicates with or is raped by by Paris, that city's prince. So it was a, it was a, it was a quest to go back to the start, which is which was Homer's narrative, and try to tell the story right through the Bronze Age, through the Dark Age that separates that from the Iron Age into the Iron Age period, where um, you know the popular narratives picked up by Herodotus and Thucydides. But before those two guys, yeah, the sources are very patchy, and that's that's the same for all archaic uh, age Greeks. You don't get a lot of information there. There's some poetry. There's some very very um, early uh, script work, but there's not a lot of dedicated source. Like Herodotus is the first one, but yeah, you're, you're piecing things together. You're using archaeology, using um, ethnography as well to piece the story together, and it's a fascinating one because the view is that you know Sparta arrives on the scene as fully fledged nation, ready to you know kick Persia's butt on the fields of Plataea and Thermopylae. But um, you know they had hundreds of years of development before that, so that's the sort of that's where I'm out of the story. In fact, I've, I've done 30 episodes and not once spoken about uh, the Greco-Persian Wars as of yet. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Gonna, yeah, sorry, I was going to ask you then. So when does it kind of appear on the scene, Sparta? When does it, what, where have you, or when and where have you kind of traced it back to? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess without going too far into the weeds, the, the Spartans of the of the Homeric narratives are probably better referred to as Archaeans. That was the type of Greek that was around at those times. Achilles. Um, mm. Achilles, yeah. Achilles was an Archean, yeah. Agamemnon, all those guys were Archaeans. Um, uh-huh, right. Homer uses the word seven or seven or eight hundred times throughout the two books to refer to the Greeks. There's Danaeans as well. There's um, Argives as well, which is a city in the Peloponnese, not far from Sparta, but predominantly he uses the word Archaeans. And it's a word you pick up later in Greece too, but it almost seems like after Troy, there was a a collapse of Bronze Age societies in the Mediterranean. And then there was a migration of peoples after that. And it looks like the Spartan peoples, their their family group of, of people came into the Peloponnese, which is the, the Bell-End area of, of Greece down there from the north uh, called the Dorian people and they supplanted the native population. So there were still Achaeans in that in that area uh, when the Spartans were at their prime, but the Spartan story, the true Spartan story, is a, is a Dorian story now. Like most of the other Greeks, they tried to tie themselves into that Bronze Age heroic narrative, but there really is two Spartans, the, the Bronze Age Sparta and the, the Iron Age Sparta, which is more popularly understood. Right. So that's what they refer to in the as the Dorian invasion, the, the migration from north into the Peloponnese, which is sort of the southwest of Greece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. Wow, it's uh, I just find it so romantic looking back at all these ancient civilizations that trace their um, the roots back to the to um, Homer, the Iliad. Yeah, well, yeah, he was you know that sort of poetry, that style was. Um, was in vogue, I guess, in that time. I mean, Homer himself was probably three or 400 years after the legendary events of, of Troy. But look, there's, you know, obviously there's a lot of archaeological evidence to support that there was possibly a, a war in that area and, and definitely some sort of, you know, globalised trade network that was going on in the eastern sector of the Mediterranean. Yeah. Uh, the Mycenaeans were were obviously the, the powerful cultural driving force of Greece during that period, and they had interactions with the Hittite Empire, uh, which was in Asia Minor to the east, and Troy was somewhere on the, the liminal boundaries between those two, sort of two great empires. And you can imagine that there was a real stomping ground, a real proving ground for, for armies back in those times. It's not, not hard to imagine Greek armies or Mycenaean armies fighting Asiatic armies at that stage. 
Yeah, the, the sort of the they believe that the archaeological site of Troy is on the, the sort of <coughs> the, what is now the west coast of Turkey, what was um, Anatolia, they used mm. to call it. So sort of directly opposite Greece in that mm-hmm. sense, So, which makes sense with the, the Homeric stories. Um, we, we had David Roll on our podcast a few months ago, who's an Egyptologist by trade, mm-hmm. and we're t- he was telling us all about the, this Greek Dark Age, or lack thereof, he reckons oh, that yeah. there's he reckons there's a problem with the Egyptian because um, ancient Egypt is used to sort of calibrate all the other evidence we have, and he reckons there's a problem with the timeline. And essentially, the Greek Dark Age didn't happen; mm. that there was just maybe a fifty-year lull, maybe, mm-hmm. and that there is actual cultural continuity from Mycenae to the early, when when ancient Greece as we know it plumps into uh, uh, interview, and it makes sense from from other in in other ways. So, for example, um, like um, uh, Aeneas. So, in, in uh, the Aeneid, Aeneas going and finding Dido uh, in Carthage. You know, Aeneas is supposed to be in fleeing the Trojan War, the uh, the collapse of the Bronze Age. But Carthage doesn't turn up in the historical records for like 300 years after that. So a lot of what he was saying sort of makes sense. I don't know if that's something you've ever come across. Yeah, yeah, look, I I can't really speak to the Egyptian side of things, though, you know, as far as using that as a reference point for for other elements of history. It is a great lodestone, I guess, for lack of a better term, whereby you've got a fairly continuous run of records and you can cross-reference anything else that you find with what's going on in Egypt and get dating through that method. There are other other ways, but that's a, a really good way of doing it. But as far as the Dark Age goes in Greece, it's probably a it's a little bit of a misnomer in that it wasn't, you know, completely dark in all regions and, and nor was the light diffused uh, entirely in every yeah. pocket. Uh, you see little croppings up here and there. There was definitely a period, say, of maybe 150, 200 years where there was a denuded sort of population. Um, some estimates say that at least 90% of the population uh, either died off or, or moved away, probably more likely the latter. Um, and obviously writing was was entirely lost throughout the peninsula. There was a transference from uh, the Greek language from Linear B text, which was the, the script of the Mycenaeans to um, what you'd call the Ionic alphabet or the Greek alphabet that came through sort of in the mid 8th to early 7th century, I would suggest. Um, and because there's no writing during that phase, people will typically call it a dark age because there's no enlightenment. But um, there was definitely definitely archaeological development in the area. Um, you know, population centres were rebuilding, you know, whatever occurred after the fall of Troy was pretty general throughout um, the eastern Mediterranean. Um, there's been a lot of work done on archaeosite seismology, so like earthquakes that happened in the area. Um Climate change yeah. also affected things. You know, there was there was there was whatever happened. You know, there was there was in, invasions by the sea peoples. I guess they could, they said they're loosely described. Um, you know, they're like some sort of mythical boogeyman, but there's no <laughs> doubt that something like that occurred. There's enough record in even linear B texts of of invaders coming from the north and ships coming in from the sea to burn and ravage and all that. So, yeah, look, there 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 wasn't a, a period of complete darkness in the Greek peninsula, the Greek mainland, but there was a denudence of, of light and reason, I suppose. I guess the point, part of the reason that we're so reliant on the Egyptian chronology is that they were the main superpower before the Bronze Age collapse, and they're pretty much the only civilization, civilization that managed to carry on, whereas, you know, the Mycenaeans disappeared, 
um, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they kind of, the Hittites get wiped out completely. The Babylonians and Assyrians sort of disappear and then come back as the Neo-Assyrians and the Neo-Babylonians. So I guess that's why we're so reliant on Egyptian chronology because they sort of stood the test of this soup of uh, disastrous things that were happening at that time. Absolutely. And and moreover, the Egyptians heavily influenced all of the neighbours, neighbouring countries, um, you know, religious practices, their their architecture, their art. You can see all of the, you know, I guess the, the central motifs to, to Greek art and architecture, even during the classical period and particularly the archaic period coming straight out of Egypt, you know, the the sphinxes, the, the griffins, you know, the, the types of columns, the poses of the statues and things like that. You know, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt was an absolute powerhouse in the Mediterranean and was really the, the great survivor over so many different dynasties and different kingdoms and different eras. They, you know, maintained a fairly homogenous culture through all of that time. And they defeated the sea peoples. Yeah. At the end of the day. So, well, so we're told. Mm-hmm. Well, they tell us that they tell us that themselves. Yeah, yeah. they've. Uh, I think it's. I think it's Ramesses the third. I think who had a, a massive victory over the sea peoples and carved it all over his um his tomb. You know, there was a, a carving of a giant Ramesses. You know, slaying thousands of these minuscule sea peoples, smiting, yeah. smiting away. Oh, there's even like you know little sea peoples trying to crawl up from the river that he's knocked them into and they're drowning. And, oh, it's, it's very dramatic, but it's, um, you know, it's yeah, big Ramesses is a good guy. Yeah, no, they they certainly did. It's such a sort of it's so brutal, isn't it? When we look at it with our modern sensibilities, and mm-hmm. you know we we sort of have such a sheltered life here in the West, or we have at least for the last sixty or seventy years, we've had a pretty we've led a pretty blessed existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we sort of all right, we'll for, forget about the Cold War and the threat of imminent nuclear <laughs> annihilation. <laughs> annihilation. All right, but maybe I think our generation. I think I, I yeah. would, I, you know we were born in eighty two, eighty three. Mm. You know, other than maybe the AIDS scare, the AIDS, yeah, of of the eighties. Yeah. You know, we've had a pretty blessed. We've had a good run, haven't we? Well, compared to, I'll you know, bring it back to. You know, if you um, grew up as a Spartan, I mean, what 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 would it be like, Steve, if if you're born into a Spartan family as a baby? What can you expect? Well, I guess it's probably uh, without getting into the the Spartan mirage and, and the popular perception of Sparta and, and the actual perception. If you were born as a son of a homoioi Spartan, that is the the upper echelons of society, you know, born into the warrior tradition of. Um, fighting in Spartan armies and, and subjugating the Helots, you would have had a life of absolute hell, one that would probably <laughs> see you sitting on a dimpled couch when you were older talking about your mummy and daddy issues to some Ooh. expert. You're paying $160 an hour. Uh, you know, from from the moment you were born, you were, were tested to see if you were uh, willing and able to be able to stand in the front line against Sparta's enemies. You know, you were you were taken to a board of, of EFAS, which was a council of of uh, a yearly elected council of, of elders, I guess, who had the uh, the ephors were responsible for you, for the for the morals of society and the dignity of society, and the babe would be inspected if it if it cried uh, out too suddenly, or if it was if it showed any fear towards these strange people, it was cast into into the, the canyon. You've probably seen in that that lovely movie uh, Three Hundred. There yeah. now, you know, there, there's some debate around whether this happened or not. And there has been such a place discovered near Sparta and it does have human remains within it. But 
most of the remains, if not all, are, are adult remains. So it's thought mm. that it was a place that prisoners were thrown. But that was the thought. The babe was also bathed in in wine and red wine. That was believed to have, have tempered the spirit and tempered the the muscles and the bone structure of, of the child. Wow! If it survived that that those those two tests, then uh, from the age of, of five or six, it was taken from its mother and father into what was known as the agoge, which was the um, translated into English, it basically means the rearing, which is more to refer to cattle. And the Spartans had a lot of uh, names that sort of related to to the herdsman's life and the rearing life. And from there, you would be separated from your family for the next 12 years where you would be uh, ritualistically starved, beaten, uh, cast out into the wild and expected to survive in very, very harsh conditions. And if you survived those tests, then your reward was another 42 years of, of battle on the front lines. And look, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all terrible. I mean, you had a, you had some land that was worked by, by the slave class, the helots. Uh, you were obviously fed, you were required to dine in, in communal halls, but you look for a Spartan child, uh, life would have been terribly harsh. You know, there's a story of, of uh, a Spartan boy that was captured with a, with a fox uh, that, he, that he'd caught and he was, hiding it within his cloak. He didn't want to get caught by his um, by his educators, by his, by his controllers. And they demanded to see what he'd had in, within his cloak. And rather than, than give up the fact that he'd found this fox and kept it, he was intending to eat it because that was starved so often, uh, he kept his mouth shut. Meanwhile, the fox gnawed through his innards. And before the teacher, the boy collapsed dead in front of him rather than, you know, cry out for help or give away that he'd stolen. That's how scared they were of being found out. So, I mean, what would yeah. the punishment have been? He would have been gnawed to death by the fox, probably. God, God only knows. God only knows. But, but a beating for sure. Yeah, they were, they were regularly beaten. Um, they had they had exercises where they had to, you know, run to an altar and, and grab some cheese off it. Meanwhile, the, cheese, the the altar was stood upon by several priests with sticks and beat them while they tried to do it. It's a very, very old. It's called diamastigosis in Greek. It's a very strange word, but it literally means trying to steal cheese while, while getting beaten. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. But look, all punishments are corporal. Um, and the ultimate fear would have been to be excluded from the, the Spartan class of, of warriors and become part of the Hippomionis, the, the inferiors, so, which is uh, the people who didn't like it. So basically, this was this was the higher echelons of society then where you were sort of kind of subjected to this. So um, the, basically, was it like the Spartans then who did this and then there was just a slave class? Was it like nobody in between? Yeah, the people who the, who the, the soldiers <laughs> capture, you know, when you invade. Yeah. Well, they've got to get your slaves in. Yeah. So there's just slaves no. and Spartans, basically. No, no. In fact, the, the Spartans were, were very small. The, the Spartans. When we say the Spartans, mm. we, we're referring to the red-cloaked you know, yeah. warriors with the upside-down yeah. V on their shield. Yeah, and the, the, the lack of the yeah, ones. Beards. Yeah, so the, the helots were a uh, native indigenous people for the most part. It's a bit of... Um, conjecture over whether they were Archaeans, as right. in the Mycenaeans that were still there. Some of them almost certainly were. The other ones were, there was two parts of, of I guess, Laconia, sorry, of the Spartan Empire in the Peloponnese. There was Laconia, where the Spartans' homeland was, and Messenia, which is to the west. When they conquered Messenia, they enslaved the locals there too, who were who were Dorian ancestors, Dorian cousins of the Spartans. So the Helots were comprised of those two groups, but there was a class in between, and they, they were literally in between. They were called the Petioikoi, which means the dwellers between and they were the dwellers between the Spartans and the Helots. They were like a, an invisible to history, uh, but a very, very populous people mm. that 
insulated the Spartans from their, their slave classes, I suppose. Yeah. They fought in the Spartan armies. They were, because the Spartans were forbidden from any practice apart from making war. They were the ones who were making their armour, uh, making their clothing, making their pottery, their jewellery and things like that. They were the artisanal class, but it was also oh, right. the highest honour for their class to fight within the ranks of the Spartan armies as well. Uh, at the Battle of Plataea, for example, which was during the Greco-Persians Wars and possibly the Spartans' greatest victory, uh, there were 5,000 full-blooded homoioi Spartans on the battlefield. There were also 5,000 petioikoi hoplites fighting with the Spartan armies, and there were 30,000 helts, slaves ah, in the army okay. as well, acting as retainers and, and skirmishes. Now, would that have been sort of um, because of need? Is that because would the would the Spartans generally have, have, have fought purely as Spartans, but the uh, circumstance dictated that they get 30,000 of the slave class in for that battle? Mm. No, not at all. Um, in fact, they uh, we always sort of imagine the Spartans, you know, standing on the battlefield by themselves and, you know, casting back hundreds of thousands of troops. But even even probably the most famous, the Battle of Thermopylae, Thermopylae um, during the Greco-Persian Wars as well, where there was 300 Spartans fighting, there were around about another 8,000 Greeks um, at that battle as well. They don't really get a lot of mention. But, um, look, the, the, for, for such a... They really punch above their weight, the Spartans, you know. At, at their greatest extent, they only ever had 8,000 full-blooded homoioi troops to be able to call to field. And because they had a large population of slaves um, enslaved within their, their home territory, they couldn't afford to send massive armies out to the field. So the 8,000 troops never marched from Sparta and never fought anywhere. At Plataea, which is a, a huge risk, as I said, only 5,000 went... Um, the Perioikoi, it was in their interest to, I guess, avoid becoming, you know, downgraded and becoming helots. They, although they could never be upgraded and become Spartans, they were quite happy with their position. So if they were called out to fight, they would go out to fight the Spartans because, you know, better how we are now rather than them. So no, it was definitely because of need. They, they, you know, they needed to have allies with them. Otherwise, they had a very insignificant force to, to of which to take on enemies. But in most battles, the Spartans fought. They were, were never the, the numerous um, troops that were on the battlefield. They were always, you know, the most important. They'd always assume the, the most important part of the battle line, which is generally the right-hand side, but uh, they were never the most numerous. I mean, they're never going to be numerous, judging by how they picked them <laughs> from birth. I mean, cracky. You do well to get through it. You mentioned um, you mentioned about them being they were separated from the mothers at four or five, and then they sort of went into this sort of communal um, living with... All the other, I mean, were they were they sort of age? Whether it was it like a class? So if you know, yes. you'd have a class seventy, or were they were they mixing with the older Spartan warriors at the same time? How did that work? Yeah, no, it was it was it was definitely age dependent, um, and and the schooling would change. You know, like for the first sort of six years, uh, it was predominantly a survival routine. You know, you learned to to live by your own wits. You were out in the cold. You know, you were living off the land, so to speak. Um, afterwards, you know, you'd move into a different age bracket where your your military training would begin in proper and then after that you'd form a sort of a reserve colony where you'd get some sort of apprenticeship towards the army. But you definitely were with people of your age, so you're in the five-year-old category, you would be other, other five-year-old boys. Um, your overlords would be a, a mixture of the Garusia, who were the, the council of elders. Sparta was a, a gerontocracy at, at its heart, so there was always elders around who... So yeah, what's, what, what was that word? Uh, gerontocracy. What, so what like, does that uh, mean? Count, 
old old council. Geriatric, basically. isn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah right. geriatric. Yeah, that's where the word comes from. Yeah, gerontocracy, gerontocracy. Yeah. It's the um, Spartans that were retired from military life and were over 60 years of age. They were elected to this board of the Gerousia, um, which is a council of elders, and right. they were there for life after that. So they had control over some of the children. There were also... Uh, there was a term called boy herder, uh, the pythonomous, uh, who also had control of some of the boys. Once again, a, a cattle term that was um, that was used to denote what the, the role was within Spartan society. So this person literally herded the boys, took them through the various exercises and was also responsible for their behaviour. If one of the boys misbehaved, then it fell poorly on the pythonomous and he was in turn punished by the Gerousia, which is also a little bit ironic considering if you, if you punish the boys too harshly, then he was also punished. So yeah, very, <laughs> punishment is basically the answer for everything in Sparta. You're going to find the uh, the Goldilocks zone of punishment. Yes. You? <laughs> you bait, well, which punishment's worse? Do you want to be beaten for not beating somebody enough or beaten for beating them too much? I was going to ask as well, um, where where does all this come from? The, the need to do this why you know it's such a it's quite unique isn't it yeah, ancient sparta I mean. this militaristic uh culture is quite unique as far as we know as far as we can compare with with other ancient civilizations so that's interesting do we have does does anyone have a good idea how this could have evolved no and like, i think i said earlier on like to to try and understand it you have to look a little bit at, at ethnography um and there's definitely certain elements of other militaristic warrior societies throughout history that have some similar elements. There was a... Yeah, a Yorkshire. Of... People from Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've met some people from Yorkshire. Um, I'm sure they're great fans of the show. And uh, But uh, like by and large, like they were unique. With with the If you take it as a whole, the way the Spartans uh, behaved towards their youth, the way they behaved towards women the way they behaved towards themselves and towards the enemies was completely unique. Um, there were elements of similar similarities. Spartans practiced a fairly strict form of, of pederasty. Um, we, we probably coincided with pedophilia these days, um, which gives it a very negative connotation. It's not to um, disavow the term from any sort of nastiness, but the Spartans took the raising of the youth very seriously. So most Spartan youths were paired off with an older man uh, who had completed the agogi. And he was designed to teach him not just the art of war and how to be a man, but there was definitely some sexual component to it. Uh, those That element of pederasty appears uh, in like Central Australian Aboriginal cultures. There's some Papua New Guinean cultures that have something sure, yeah. similar. So you, you yeah. can draw certain ethnographic links between there and there. But as far as you know, putting your children into a state-sponsored education program that was designed to make them warriors uh, and the greatest warriors of all time, that never happened before um it, it happened for two reasons i think the the first reason being that they had a large population of of slaves and they needed to keep them under subjection and the only way to do that was to basically turn sparta into a into a military camp um and the second reason would be just because of the the very landscape itself they lived in a very rocky mountainous and, and rugged terrain um and these terrains, these areas were easily defended by, by armies and soldiers. The land was very fertile. So I think perhaps this, this freed up the Spartans from the usual grind. Right, of, of working oil. the land, yeah. Working mm. the land so much, yeah, yeah. And moreover, this, but the Helots entirely, entirely emancipated that, them from that. So I think that drew them towards more of a military culture. From there. It's almost it's like uh, it's like an early form of eugenics in a way, isn't it? The way the children or the the noble children, the children in the upper class, are sort of 
selected, if that's the right word for it, and it's the sort of survival of the fittest. It's mm. quite disturbing. And you mentioned there about the way they were paired off with a, a an older Spartan with a, a child who was like, that's probably the wrong word, but like a role model or someone who would take mm. over his training. It just reminds me of, it reminds me slightly of the sacred band from Thebes, the crack forces of the Theban army. And I wonder if there's yeah. any continuity there. Is there any sort of cultural link that maybe Thebes sacred band inherited something or some of this routine from Sparta? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll just go back to your first point. First of all, um, I think it's important that we can, we can talk about these things in history without any sort of the, the modern, um, you know, preconceptions of, you know, being taboo or worrying about being cancelled. Um, I think we, we forget and we we uh, mould history at our peril. You know, it's important to understand every element of it, and and we can safely leave it in history. Talking about any of history's nasty point doesn't go to show that we endorse any of it whatsoever. It just shows we have an understanding of what went before. So, um, I think we can use whatever language we, we want there. But as far as the the theme and sacred band goes, look, um, uh, Plutarch in the in the second century wrote a um, a series of Spartan sayings down called the Apophagus. And in one of the sayings, uh, it says that it was a, a, a law from Lycurgus, who was Sparta's mythical uh, founder, said that they should avoid fighting the same army enemy too many times in that they might learn Sparta's tricks. And Agesilaos, who was a king uh, in the early 4th century, made that big exact mistake. He fought and defeated the Thebans continuously on the battle. And to be fair, over the past 300 years, the Thebans had a pretty bad rub of the green when it came to fighting the Spartans. Um, they really had a lot to... I looked at game by just getting the upper hand of them one of these days. The Spartans certainly squashed them under the boot heel for a, a considerable period of time. So what happened at the end of the at the beginning of the fourth century was Sparta fought Thebes in a series of, of wars, and Thebes eventually learnt its lessons from from Sparta's continuous defeats. There was a couple of brilliant generals um, that were coming through at the time as well that were real revolutionary revolutionaries of the time, and they were very aware of Sparta's. Um, I guess it's myth and it's legend. Um, so they created the band called the Sacred Band and they made it a band of 300 soldiers. And look, that number was, you know, was, yeah, we, we know about that number now. Um, in the 370s, 380s, when the band was formed, it was only 100 years after Thermopylae. Um, it was a very, very, you know, basically a, a middle finger to Sparta saying, you know, F you guys, you know, we can do this as well. And it was uh, 150 homosexual pairs um, this wasn't uncommon in, in Greek battlefields. Quite often um, they would put um, homosexual lovers next to each other. The idea, obviously, in, in ancient Greece was that um, there was no afterlife. You know, like the, the Christian church basically came along and said, you know, don't, don't worry about how you live your life. You know, just say sorry. God will forgive you. Everything will be okay. Didn't happen for the ancient Greeks. If the ancient Greeks died, they were dead. They went to Hades and they were forgotten about. They were a shade of spirit. The only thing they could be remembered by was their deeds on, on the battlefield, more or less. So if you had to live like a brave man, like a good, good, a good man, and if you had your lover in the line beside you on the battlefield, you weren't going to turn tail and run. You didn't want to be a coward in front of your lover because he'd remember you as that. You wanted to die through acts of bravery. So it was a, it was a calculated move by the Thebans, but one that had happened several times before. And when they met the Spartans on the Battle of Lutra, uh, the fields of Lutra in 371, it was the sacred band that was absolutely pivotal in, in crushing Spartan might for all time. Wow. Yeah, they uh, trained them too well. It's like, yeah. it's a fascinating sort of uh, moment in history. You know, the themes have, have took it all in. They've had the tail whipped several times and then they've adapted. They've evolved. They've learned the lessons and mm. uh, the tables were turned. It's interesting. So was it kind of... Um 
I suppose uh, wasn't taboo then to be in kind of a, a homosexual relationship then in ancient Greece. I, I've kind of heard that um, and sort uh, of the stuff about, yeah, the kind of the paedophilia and things like that. Um, and it wasn't necessarily looked on as a, a negative thing back then, basically. Not at all. Um, you know, this is, this is always taken incredibly misogynistically, but, but it's, it's not meant that way at all. But in, in ancient Greece, um, you know, Aristotle himself, who we, who we, um, you know, we, we respect and adore from the future for his philosophies and all that. He, he thought that it was scientifically provable that women were inferior to men. Um, and therefore... They had less you know, teeth. <laughs> that, I think that was Aristotle, wasn't it? Who was, was it? Um, who's the guy, the father of medicine? Uh, Hippocrates? I'm sure he thought, he, he was convinced that the, uh, they had less teeth, women. Yeah, yeah. They also believed that women didn't have a soul, I suppose, in, in so to speak. You know, uh, yeah, you haven't met my wife. I've met some, yeah, I've, yeah. <laughs> I've met some pretty soulless guys too. So, <laughs> but um, look, in, in saying that, it was almost a, a thing that that whilst you you know you could have a relationship with a woman and and it was essential to to carry on your line, um, you could never really truly love a woman the way that you could love another man. They didn't have the qualities with which right. you should be esteeming so no it wasn't it wasn't taboo at all to uh, to have a homosexual relationship in fact it was incredibly common uh, i would say you know like vastly more common i'd say than strictly heterosexual relationships that have been far more bisexuality i guess in in ancient greece and um relations with children uh weren't uncommon either the spartans mm. had some very strict rules around it and in fact if it was a relationship purely for pleasure then that was shunned and that was punishable within Spartan right. society, not so in Athens, not so in Thebes, not so in mm. Corinth and other cities, but in Sparta, there were very strict forms around the pederasty that they had involved there. And um, moreover, the the child, the the Erastis, the, the the lover, I guess you could say, was um, was the personal responsibility of his older tutor and the same with the the Pythonomus I mentioned earlier on. If the, if the boy, the junior partner in a relationship, acted poorly, then it reflected badly. Upon his upon his senior lover as well, so it was a very strict and ritualised form in Sparta. But um, in answer to your question, no, it wasn't wasn't to build all. Um, mm. I think it's two thousand years of Christianity that's changed our yeah. lives somewhat. Absolutely, but, um, yeah. That was something very common. Very, yeah, what you've, you've uh, got to get in your head, Matt, is that we are superior. <laughs> We're superior to the women. They're sort of below us. Yeah, well, in I, that way, so I, you probably would you would win a wrestling fight with your wife. I wouldn't. So. <laughs> Um, I can't say that. I mean, uh, I, I'm thinking something I wanted to ask you, Steve. I mean, we, we, you talked right at the beginning about the selection process for a baby when it's born, and we talked specifically about male babies because these are the ones, again, they have this attitude that males are superior to females and they're being groomed into into being this elite warrior. What happened? Was there... Ooh, I don't know, was there abortions of like pre after birth abortions of females? What was what was the outlook like if you were born a female? Do we even have that sort of information? Yeah, no, we we do, and and actually, great question. And individually, I think amongst the Spartans, we have good account of, of their women. Um, and in Athens, to to, to compare it. We probably have better account of the of the flute girls, the the courtesans, the prostitutes, rather than we do have have of, of Athenian women. But in Sparta, we have not only accounts of their women, we actually have their words as well. And um, and Plutarch, who I mentioned earlier on, who wrote some sayings of, of Spartan men, also recorded some sayings of Spartan women. And some of them, uh, one one I quote in particular, um, gives us a very good um, 
look at, at how the Spartan women were, what regard the Spartan women were held in. And uh, there was a woman, a foreigner, that walked up to a, a Spartan woman at one stage and said to her, how is it that you, you Spartan women have so much control over your men? And, this, and she said in passing, well, it's because Spartan women are the only ones who give birth to men. And it was a bit of a, a backward, you know, sort of insult in that, you know, wherever this woman came from and whoever her sons were, they weren't real men in the form of the Spartans. But Spartan women uh, absolutely weren't discarded at birth. They weren't uh, aborted. There, there, there was... Um, I guess, exposure of babies that, that weren't, um, you know, physically fit or emotionally fit or, or just, you know, didn't really, you know, measure up um, according to Spartan customs that were exposed to this, this stories of, of that happening. They were left on uh, a, mount, a mountain not far from Sparta. Um, but Spartan women themselves were, were just as important as Spartan boys and the Spartan education system uh, was also there for the girls as well. Um, Eugenics was an important part. I mean, obviously, these girls were expected to one day grow up, marry a Spartan man, and give birth to more Spartan children. So the Spartan women were were educated, if not as much or every bit as much as the as the Spartan men. Um, they were also given training that, that other girls in other cities weren't given it at all. They were obviously with the men away on campaign a lot. The Spartan women became the the lords of the household, so to speak, and all Spartan families had land and land holdings that need to be managed. Uh, the women had to do that. They did a lot of physical exercises uh, to, it was believed that, you know, a healthier body would make a healthier, I guess, garden bed for, you know, the planting of Spartan seed for the future generations. Um, we have recordings of, of Spartans, women's songs that they used to stand around and sing. They had their own rituals that were a little bit homoerotic uh, in their, in their own nature as well. And Spartan women throughout Greece were renowned for their um, almost licentious nature. Uh, there was a there's a, pay, a play, a comedy by Aristophanes. Uh, he was a, a late fifth century uh, playwright, probably the, the the father of, of old comedy. It's called the the Lysistrata, and it's set during the Pal. It was actually written and set during the Peloponnesian War. And the Athenian women decide the only way to bring this, uh, I think, at the time of that fifteen year war, uh, to conclusion was to go on a sex strike. And to go on a sex strike, they decided to all hold up on top of the uh, of the Acropolis and withhold sex from their men to try and bring their men to the to the negotiating table. And there was a, a Spartan woman who who came from Sparta to join the Athenian under this sex strike. And um, there's a, there's quite a lot of lewd references to how firm her body is. Like uh, they, <laughs> one line says, like Lampito, what a fine pair of breasts you have, you know. And, she says, oh, well, thank you. I can do, you know, heel to butter jumps. And it's more to, to define how fit and how healthy and how um, active the Spartan women were as comparison. So, now look, they absolutely were a massive part of society. Um, yeah, Spartan heiresses, particularly towards the end of, of the Spartans' primacy, were incredibly, uh, you know, popular and hard to get hold of items because they, they could have uh, patrimony, they could have land inheritance and things like that. And they held a considerable portion of the wealth within Sparta too. Now, they were very liberated by, by ancient Greek standards. Mm. that's the kind of thing that that i've heard is that he was sort of by the standards of the time much more involved in in society so it's quite interesting um to we, hear that we get told you know fast forwarding <clears throat> back to 2021 mm. the narrative we are often told about history is um women have been oppressed forever and i would argue that it's people have been oppressed forever and if you read roman history and greek history there are a lot of powerful women 
Mm. Um, even in our country, Boudicca. Yeah. You know, Bodicea. There have been powerful... Same with Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more uh, it's more of a class issue, I think, than a than a yeah. gender issue. Mm. Um, but there are arguments, you know, men have taken primacy mm. for physical reasons. You know, the, you can't get away from the biology. We are stronger. We are the ones who have to... Our job is to sacrifice... Uh, over history, our job has been to sacrifice ourselves mm. for our wives and our children. Mm-hmm. And the, the, so there are cultural echoes of that which, which make the way through to today. Um, so. Yeah. I just wanted to maybe go off on a bit of a tangent, though. Um, mm. Something that was kind of percolating in my mind Ooh. was... Um, I've been thinking... You, you kind of mentioned sort of the 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 slave class. Did you say there was a, around about 30,000? Did you say 30,000? Did I remember that? That was the, the army. Compliment that, was, that went right, to okay. the army there, yeah. So... Um, so you said at maximum there was eight thousand Spartans. Is that is that right in the entire right. state? So how many slaves? Did they, they can take a guess at how many slaves they were sort of overseeing with that amount? It's impossible to to truly say. I mean, if you were to take it from the Battle of Plataea, where there was six times the number of um, of Spartan soldiers, uh, sorry, six times the number of helots at the battle than there were Spartan soldiers, then you could roughly estimate that there were you know six times the amount of male. Mm. citizen or populations within those places but that that's not a fair indication of it either um you know of those eight thousand, there would have been innumerable amount of spartans that just couldn't make the grade and therefore weren't counted as spartans they would have fallen into the different um inferior classes that were around there was also you know massive amounts of, of perioikoi um some some estimates put them at equal numbers to the um to the hallowed class as well mm. but most historians give a rough number of between eight to ten times more mm. uh hallots uh, within the Peloponnese, Spartan Peloponnesian Empire, than there were actual um, Laconian homoios. Mm. So, what I was going to ask is: Is there any kind of record of a, like a slave uprising from mm. that? You know, oh, where they yeah. they gave it a go and uh, tried <laughs> to yeah. take them on Continu- continuously. Right. Yeah, look, okay. I mean, Pausanias, uh, he was a, a Greek travel writer. He's basically like the, I guess, the, the grandfather of the Lonely Planet book. He um, travelled Greece and he, you know, wrote like more or less a travel novel. And it reads, you know, very much like a like a Lonely Planet. You know, this is very had, you know, it's very stayed. This is very had some, you know, good stuff to drink. This is very ate some good food. This is very checked out a nice <laughs> temple. It was, um, you know, this is where you should stay. Don't talk to this person. You know, very, very, um, very contemporary uh, from when he was writing it. Um, this, there was this, the, fir- the first sort of recorded war of Sparta was called the First Mycenaean War, and it was when the, the Spartans first decided to defy their geography and they went around Mount Teagetus to the west and conquered um, the Pamesos Valley, which was, um, I guess, the Mycenaean territory's really fertile area. And that was where they, I guess, they first started practising helotry on the western side of the Teagetus Mountains. They possibly enslaved some um, indigenous populations in the Laconian region prior to that. That was in around 740 to 720 BCE. Now, there was a second Mycenaean War about 20 to 30 years later, if you were to believe the chronology, which was a general uprising of those Mycenaean helots. And it was another 20-year conflict in which Sparta ultimately won and enforced their servitude across more broader areas of Mycenae. But from that period of time, there was anywhere from four to five slave uprisings of serious nature over the next three to 400 years before the Battle of Lutra, which is the, the end point, I guess, for, for, for um, 
the, the true Spartan narrative from there to become, you know, a part of the crowd rather than they're being set up part. The most significant one happened in 464 BCE. Uh, there was a, a massive earthquake in Sparta um, from seismology, from archaeoseismology, they estimated to be about 7.6 on the Richter scale. So she was a big one. And um, not that Sparta was a well-developed uh, area like Athens with large buildings and things like that, but it caused a lot of destruction in Sparta itself. The epicenter was only about four kilometres to the west of Sparta. Uh, this caused a general uprising of the helots and, the Sp- and Sparta was in a lot of trouble. Now, there was a, a Greco alliance that was still loosely in place following the Greco-Persian wars and Sparta lent on that and called in aid from other Greek cities. Athens came to help them, I think, with about four or 5,000 troops uh, to help them put down the revolt. But the Athenians were so disgusted that the Spartans had not, not enslaved. The Athenians had slaves too, but they'd enslaved Greeks. And that really stuck in the core of every other Greek city that was out there because it was one thing to, you know, capture barbarians and bring them back to, you know, work your silver mines or, or row your boats, but to enslave Greeks who... Um, you know, according to Aristotle, had the spirit of, of freedom and the, the soul of the gods, so to speak. That was a that was an incredibly taboo thing. So the Spartans ended up sending that army packing and, and put down the slave revolt themselves. But yeah, absolutely, the the, the helots were always uh, looking mm. to to revolt. The Spartans lived in a military camp. Uh, there was a famous saying that the Spartans merely had a wolf by the throat in the Mycenaean mm. people. That um, they had to continuously put them down. They went out into the, into the world. They had a secret police called the Crypteria, whose sole job was to uh, instill a reign of terror amongst the helots. You know, they'd yeah. go out to the night and, you know, summarily execute, burn houses down, you know, burn fields, uh, do whatever they could to create terror. Um, you know, they were, they were scared. And that was also why they, they never liked to march large armies out of Sparta. They needed to have a massive mm. manpool, manpower to call upon to mm. be able to put them down should they need to. So, yeah, this, the helots being... Greeks at heart and being Dorians moreover, you know, cousins of the Spartans weren't happy with being being enslaved and never were. And after Lycra, the first thing the Thebans did was liberate those uh, those Mycenaean helots and created a new city for them called Megalopolis, which was uh, to, the, to the north of Sparta, basically, you know, shutting Sparta in the southern half of the Peloponnese forevermore after that. Oh, my God, I love it. I mean, it's part of the problem. What were the Spartans like when it comes to record-keeping? Was writing either for record-keeping or for uh, drama or fiction or whatever? Was, I mean, because it's such a... I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that because it's such a militaristic state that maybe record-keeping was put on the back burner and this is why we sort of have to guess and interpret and look at ethnography and archaeology to try and piece the puzzle together. Is there, some, is there any truth in that? Absolutely, yeah, 100%. I mean, the Spartan Mirage says that um, there was no writing within Sparta. Um, that's that's not true, but, you know, for looking back historically, it's, it, it might as well be true. Like, we have no uh, prose writings from Sparta survive whatsoever. Uh, we have some some poetic writings that have come down from some archaic poets. Uh, Tertius and, and Terpanda were, were uh, Spartan poets that lived in the perhaps the late 8th, early 7th century BCE and wrote some some extremely beautiful bellicose poetry um, around, <laughs> you know, being... Oh, it was very... It was war poetry, you know, stand shoulder to shoulder with your man, you know, thrust out with your spear, you know, don't <laughs> run away and get shot by an arrow in the back, you know, you'll be a coward, nobody will like you for that. All this sort of stuff. <laughs> um, but really the first proper writing we have of of, of about Sparta comes from Herodotus right. um, and then obviously Thucydides. I mean, Herodotus was neither Athenian or Spartan, but he was an exile from Asia Minor, perhaps uh, participated in a revolt against 
um, the local Persian uh, overlords, but he was probably more Athenian in his, his sympathies. Uh, we had Thucydides, who was a general during the Peloponnesian War and had the uh, had the, his arguable honour of being defeated by a couple of Spartan generals in the battlefield as well. So he was no huge friend of Sparta, though he certainly admired their um, military capacities. And it's not really until we hit Xenophon, who was um, uh, very early 4th century, was a disciple of, of Socrates, who was so disillusioned with his home city's um, forced suicide of Socrates that uh, he actually left Athens and then took up residence in Sparta. He was given some, some land there. He actually put his two children through the Agoga as well. And he was he was a true laconophile. He was a, he was good friends with the king at the time, Agassilaos, and uh, his writings form some of the really important stuff. But that is the only real, I guess, contemporary account we have of, of Spartans. And it was from a, you know, a Spartan sympathising Athenian at the end of the day. So yeah. we have absolutely nothing. Yeah, look, the Spartans had writing. They've, they've excavated... Uh, the ancient region of Sparta, and they've found, you know, plinths with with Greek lettering on them. There's even a bench which speaks a lot to uh, how the Spartans used to hold their their elderly in regard. The bench actually says, if you're a young person, an old person comes along, stand up and let them sit down. So, you know, we have that in a in an epigraph, epigraphical form. Um, we have inscriptions from even from a, a woman who who won some Olympic crowns. Uh, she was the sister of King Agassilaos. She won a couple of chariot crowns at the um, at the Olympics uh, in the early fourth century. Of course, she wasn't there racing the horses, but she trained them. Um, so, yeah, we have some epigraphical evidence of that, but nothing prose, no no works like Herodotus or anything like that coming from a Spartan source whatsoever. So it's all, yeah, like you say, archaeology, ethnography, a little bit of guesswork. Yeah, mm-hmm. piece it together. That I've never heard and... I love the fact that you use this term, laconophile. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, most people, unless you've read a bit of ancient history, you've probably never heard of Lacedaemonia or laconic. You might have heard the term laconic. Um, but this sort of term we use, laconic speech, so Clint, uh, if you ever listen to Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. I love him. It's amazing, isn't he? He did... Um, I'm guessing it was on the. It must have done. It must have been the series he did on the Achaemenid Persians. He must have talked about the Battle of Thermopylae, the the Hot Gates, the 300, and he goes into this um, discussion or this description of where the term laconic comes from. Like we would describe Clint Eastwood as a laconic actor. This sort of uh, the way you use words to. Uh, using the least possible words mm-hmm. to get your point across. But this is some. This is a cultural thing that goes back two and a half thousand years that we still use today. It's. It, I think Dan Collin makes the point that, if nothing else, the fact that the this race of well, not race is the wrong word, but this society of warrior people, over two and a half thousand years have handed us down this word to describe them. It's one of the few things that we know about them that that's, that's mm-hmm. unique about them is is the way they talk, which is incredible because. You know, how long have we had recorded sound, recorded music, mm. but this has been passed down over two and a half thousand years that we have a, a, an idea of how these these guys actually taught laconic, mm. and we gave it, and, you know, it was named after them. So where, where, tell us where that comes from. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was also a term that was, uh, whether it was coined in the ancient time, it was definitely a, a feature of, of Spartan speech and communication that was well understood uh, in the ancient Greek world. There was a there's a an anecdote that um, 
Philip of Macedon, so Alexander the Great's father, sent the Spartans a, a message. And this is post-Battle of Lutra, mind you, so they've, they've long since ceased, ceased being one of the premier powers of ancient Greece. But he sent a message to the Spartans saying something along the lines of, if I came into the Peloponnese and fought you Spartans, you would be crushed. And the Spartans sent back simply a message, if. Mm-hmm. So they left it at that. Um, you know, the, the mere term, obviously, modern labe, which you've heard before, uh, you know, come and get them. The, the, the speech, laconic speech was actually something that was taught as well during the Agoga. When oh. children were asked to give uh, answers or to expound upon some topic, they were actually punished if they used too many words in describing it, where they were praised when they could use as, as few words as possible mm. to, to impart the meaning. So within, it's like Scientology. Within, <laughs> a little bit, yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> I was just going to say, what, that, that maybe, would you not say that has like a military benefit in yeah, that? E- efficiency, you, yeah. That's what I mean, obviously. Shouting orders, yeah. Yeah. You, you, Every, everything's geared, yeah, everything in the society is geared towards military supremacy. It's amazing. Yeah, that's what I mean. Absolutely, yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Clifton message speech, you, you, can, you can see that in the military today, mm. and it was definitely a facet of Sparta. I mean, the, the, the thought of Sparta as a, a functioning military camp is a good one to have. That's exactly how it was seen. Um, mm. You know, the, the war footing, they were on a war footing perpetually, and they yeah. were at war for the bulk period of time from that, from their history, from the start to the end, but they were also at war continuously. You know, they, they had a, a massive population of slaves who were hostile towards them for very good reason. Within, <laughs> you know, within their houses, they were farming their lands so were, with their children. So yeah, I think the, that method of speech was, was, uh, was very helpful and conducive to their society. And I guess the term laconophilia, um, that's a relatively modern speech. We, you know, uh, the Greek word phile, philis, uh, philis means friend. We we use the word affiliate these days, which is where that right. word comes from. And uh, Laconia, Laconia is the the reason the region where the the Greeks came, uh, the Spartans came from. So Laconophilia is just yeah, you know, a lover of of all things Spartan. And you mentioned the term Lacedaemonian um, is a good one. Uh, it's, that doesn't get bandied around too much. But Sparta was a funny place in that Sparta was was the city. Um, and Spartans were the people, but also Lacedaemon was the was the state, and Lacedaemonia mm. was the the region, I suppose, and Lacedaemons were the people. So they had some interesting terms that sort of intertwined in there. But yeah, Laconia is the is the broader region around um, the city of Sparta. And there's there's a certain well, if if you can take Herodotus at his word and whatnot, but there's a certain <laughs> sort of uh, dark humour towards it as well with the the laconic speech. So I think it's when um, Xerxes sends his emissary to the 300. So we're told in legend. Yeah, I wasn't there. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm an old romantic, so I hope it's true. <laughs> but the emissary says like uh, Xerxes, we ha- we have so many archers. When we, when we loose our arrows, it will block out the sun, mm-hmm. the amount of arrows, and the Spartan general or the Spartan whatever says, excellent, we will fight in the shade. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God, like you couldn't write that for Clint Eastwood. I'm pretty yeah, sure, those guys are great. I'm pretty sure Gerard Butler said that. Did he? In the yeah. film. I'm Did he? Sure it, he was, um, that, yeah. it was, uh, who's, who's the guy that plays Professor X in the X-Men? That, that, um, <laughs> He was the one in, in 300 that said, can't he die? Patrick Stewart? <laughs> no. Oh, no, no. Sorry, not, no, not Professor X. Sorry, Magneto. The, the new Magneto. Oh, oh Earl Grey, hot. <laughs> uh, Michael Fassbender, is it? Fassbender, that's Fassbender. it. He's the one that says it in the, in the movie, Mr. Right. Fassbender. Yeah. I didn't realise I mean, the, the Persians were... All right. So they, they were just utterly 
confused by the Spartans, you know, like every other city had submitted to them on the way through. And I think it was on the eve of the third day of that battle, uh, which was the last day, Xerxes sent a, you know, a scout to see what the Spartans are up to. Like, go and check these guys out. They must be over there quivering in fear. But the scout came over and found out they're, they're oiling themselves. They're brushing their beards. They're, they're, they're taking exercise, you know. It's just, they were just utterly bewildered. Like, these guys are insane. Yeah, utterly insane. Just another yeah. day at the military camp. Yeah, it? they're Can just, just yeah. grooming themselves and, and doing body weight exercises. And, like, the, the, uh, the emissary goes back to Xerxes. And it's like, what are they doing? Well... Working out. <laughs> uh, in fact, Xerxes uh, um, had a, a Spartan king in his entourage, didn't he? Yeah, uh, so, so, yes, so we're told, anyway. We don't. It's Herodotus. Yep. But you know, yeah. the Xerxes the, um, consults this Spartan king and says, "You know, my emissary says they're doing body weight. They're doing squats <laughs> and, co- and combing the hair. What's going on?" He says, "Well, they're preparing to fight." Yeah. It's like, well, I'm at the I'm at the head of an army of a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. There's three hundred Spartans and a few thousand Greeks. Yeah, yeah, they're gonna fight. They're gonna fight till they die. Mm. It's just, it's. I mean, it's just. It blows it, my mind. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. I think the other thing as well is that at that time, if Xerxes' army was a hundred thousand strong, surely that would have just been unimaginable, wouldn't it? That that size of force at that time. Nothing unusual. We no. we have it in our heads that. You know, we talk about like the Battle of Hastings and stuff, where we mm. we had piddling armies of like five thousand. The Romans, they had massive, massive armies made yeah. up from countries all over Europe and, and North Africa. Mm. Had, obviously, not all Romans. They they, they, they brought in, you know, they had mm-hmm. the Sarmatian cavalry and and auxiliaries from, from all over. You know, but that was part of the deal. You mm. you come under Rome, you pay taxes, and when we ask, you provide troops mm-hmm. for, for the legions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I would argue that armies... Mm, two thousand, two and a half thousand years ago, would have been bigger. You know, the, 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 those size of armies wouldn't have been eclipsed probably till well, definitely not till Napoleon. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're hundred percent right. Um, I mean, the Romans are, are a great one to bring up. I mean, at the Battle of Cannae, which was the oh, the, don't the third, bring that the up. Third battle. Yeah, the third battle of you know the the second Carthaginian War, and after already suffering two you know, massive defeats at the Battle of Trebia Ford and Lake Tresemane, the Romans still managed to punch out another seventy thousand you know basically citizens. At this stage, they weren't an empire, and you know 000. confront Hannibal, and they were wiped out to a man almost. Apart from a you know I think a force of ten thousand escaped, they were they were wiped out, and and definitely when you look at the the Roman invasions of Greece against the Macedonian empires at that time, the battles were. Yeah, evenly fought 50,000 people each side. Um, when Alexander the Great went into Persia and, and yeah. fought at Gorgamella and the the uh, Granicus, the river, uh, he was up against forces of hundreds of thousands of, of troops uh, at those stages. It's the, the logistical uh, mm. nightmare that it would have created to be able to support and feed and, you know, uh, stable those sorts of cavalry contingents and things like that was just out of control. Like you say, Phil, we wouldn't have had armies like that until probably the Napoleonic era again. Mm. That's yeah. the size and scope, you know. It simply just people just couldn't afford it. That's what. I was gonna, yeah, <laughs> the, the amount, just the amount of food, grain, water, hay, the, the, the massive baggage train. Mm, yeah, you know. Mm. It, but it, I mean, it, Napoleon made the sea change where he he, mil, he uh, militarized the entire country, mm. uh, which hadn't been seen before for for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, because there just wasn't the there weren't the money for it mm. at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, it was obviously like significant. Herodotus, he sort of, I guess, counter counterposes the, the Persian advance into Greece 
via the rivers that they can't buy. And he breaks the rivers down into two broad categories, either rivers that were completely drunk dry by the army or rivers that weren't. And I, I mean, it, it's sort of laughable to imagine an army drinking dry any river, but I think it's more of a poetic reference to simply how many people yeah. were at those areas. You know, and I've been to a lot of those places the armies have stopped out along and I've seen those rivers that they couldn't possibly be drank dry, like it was some sort of crazy phenomenon. But in Herodotus's mind, the the sheer scope of the armies, and he would have spoken directly to people who were at the battlefields, who would have seen the wars themselves and who more than likely fought in them. Um, so it would have been his impression of it later, later on that you know, these armies were so enormous that mm. the bodies of water would have taken to, to quench their thirst would have been massive by scope. Mm. Yeah. Well, Steve, we've rocked up past an hour just now yeah. already. Oh, well. I don't know where it's gone. <laughs> yeah, so are you coming back next week? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, it's a lot of fun. Really good. No, I've really enjoyed it. I, yeah, it's I could, good. I could talk ancient history all day. Especially yeah. as someone who's so knowledgeable about, about these subjects across Rome and mm. and Greece and all the rest of it. And um, I think uh, a lot of the, what I've taken away from this and something I've learned over the last 12, 18 months as well is going mm. back to the original sources. Mm. Uh, we kind of, in our modern day, we think they're, they're kind of stuffy and maybe not very interesting. But, I mean, you, you described Paulson, 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 I can't even say it, Paulsonanius? Paulsonius, yeah. Paulsonius. It's like the travel writer. And we've got mm-hmm. Herodotus, who's like, um, I call him more like the, the father of journalism than history because he's, he's like a, he's going around and reporting. He's interviewing people and reporting on what mm-hmm. they say, whether it's Egypt and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the first time, I read some Sophocles, who's like mm. the famous Greek playwright. Mm-hmm. He wrote Oedipus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, we won't get into Oedipus, but, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I absolutely loved it. And, like, I'm not a fan of plays. I never I never enjoyed Shakespeare or anything like that at school. I'm just a northern working-class guy who's interested in history. And I was I couldn't put it down. Wow. There's a reason why these this stuff has stood the test of time for 2,500 years, because mm. it's that good. I'd recommend, mm. I read the three Theban plays by Sophocles, and it was like, favourite book of the year. <laughs> Fucking yeah. loved it. Beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've uh, really enjoyed this, and uh, encourage mm. everyone to go back to the sources, read some ancient Greek stuff, some Roman yeah. stuff. Also go and yeah. see uh, Steve's podcast. Absolutely. SpartanHistoryPodcast.com. Exactly. Links in the show Great notes. Mm. Yeah, look, links are in the show notes as ever. And you're on Twitter as well, at mm. Spartan underscore history, if anyone wants to follow you. And, uh, yeah, well, I've really enjoyed our chat and, uh, yeah, love to do it again sometime. Definitely. Um, thanks for getting up early for us. Oh, yes. No, thanks for staying up late for me. Nah. <laughs> We're used to that. Yeah. Right. We'll sign off, Steve. Is there anything yeah. you want to say before we go? Yeah. Before- no, not at all. But just look, thank that. thanks for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk uh, Spartan and ancient history more generally. And um, I'd love to come back sometime. And I wish you guys yeah. all the best of your show. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, can't wait to hear some more episodes. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Same goes to you. Mm-hmm. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Don't touch that dial. Do not. Stay with us while we play ourselves out. And yeah. We'll catch you on the other side, Steve. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Ben. Right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. Hopefully you just heard our chat with uh, Steve Whitehead from the Spartan History Podcast. We're yeah. doing things uh, bass backwards again this week. Yeah, that's because uh, we're, we're talking to people from the other side of the planet. 
What would uh, what, how would Joe Biden say? That that guy down under. <laughs> did he try to do an Australian accent as well? <laughs> no, I don't know why I did. <laughs> an idiot. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I, I mm. sort of halfway through it and realised that Joe Biden isn't Australian. Mm. Uh, he would have gone mm, that that fella down under. <laughs> Not a joke. That's what he says all the time in his speeches. My dad used to say that, and then he died. (laughs) True story. Get vaccinated. That's that's creepy. Yeah, it's a good one of them. No agenda guys play that all the time. So yeah, check out the links to uh, the Spartan History podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, if you want to learn more. Excellent. It was an excellent chat with Steve Whitehead. We're doing this backwards. We've already said it. Well, hopefully Steve's going to be here in like an hour and a half. So we're going to do some housekeeping and topical stuff while while we await await the arrival of our Antipodean compadre. Yeah. 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 Is he called Leonidas? No. Steve. Steve. (laughs) (laughs) That's a power move, isn't it? If you change your name by deed poll. Yeah. Steve Leonidas. <laughs> Whitehead. Rolls off the tongue nicely, then. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. This is a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast valuable, please consider returning some values. A myriad of ways of doing this. Word of mouth is uh, top of the list. Yeah. Spread the word. If you know someone who enjoys podcasts and maybe or enjoys the uh, subjects we cover, mm. feel free to uh, share us around. Mm. Toss us around yeah. like a, a, an old chamois. Maybe just like Spider-Man is around. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Follow us on all the, all the socials, the social media profiles. Yeah, all you, of them. Yeah, YouTube, Odyssey. Yeah. Subscribe mm. there. Mm. Hit the bell. Slide into our <laughs> Dot Martins. Smash that like button. <laughs> yeah. Hit the bell. Smash the like button. Mm. Subscribe. Yeah. Slide Where into is it? the is it anywhere? Oh. Is it round here somewhere? No. Um, no. OBS, the OBS version of OBS we use does not allow widgets. Oh. So uh, it's it's work in progress. I'm looking into it. If I, uh, if I bite the bullet and buy um, a desktop... Then I will get some other software that allows all that sort of stuff. I think Amish Ben should just build you one. Really? God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, With donated parts. I, I would like to have it, you know, before I die. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't do it in a week. <laughs> <laughs> what did Jay Z said? Difficult takes a day, impossible takes a week. Nine nine problems. Yes. <laughs> no, it wasn't from that. It was one uh, no. one he did with Kanye on uh, Kanye's first, first album, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, what else? Merch store. Go to the Amish Loot Chest. Link in the show notes and get your uh, your merch. You can support us that way. Leave us a, yeah. a review on iTunes mm-hmm. or wherever you can review us. Podcast Addict, whatever. Um, forward it on to us if it's via another platform and we'll read them out. Mm. We'll read your reviews out. I haven't got any this week. Yeah, we do. Oh, have we? We have one review. Yeah, it's a short one. Hmm? Would, would you like me to read it out? <laughs> is well, it one word? That's what we do, generally. It is um, the number eight. The number eight? Mm. Yeah, it was um, a bit of a, a cryptic review um, left on the Podbean app. All oh, right. Um, and it just says eight. 
you want me to look up who it was? You can do if you want. Number eight. I wonder what the significance... What was, what was the title of episode eight? I've no idea. Have we been prophetic? <laughs> Maybe. I would Accidental no. Nostradamus. I'd imagine not. Um, <laughs> you. Um, you can um, join the likely. join the Discord server, um, yeah. where you can send us news articles, timestamped video clips and audio clips, uh, links to interesting stuff that you think maybe requires amplification, like the mainstream isn't covering. You can send us show artwork if you want your art to be used as the uh, artwork in your pod in the uh, podcast app that you use. Send it to us via the Discord. Uh, what else can you do on Discord? Send us memes for Instagrams. Request a birthday shout out. Uh, give us guest suggestions, um, corrections, addendums, corrigendums. We have got a birthday this week, actually. Uh, online chemistry tutor. His birthday is tomorrow, Monday the 11th. Oh, happy birthday, OCT. Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. Yeah. Um, what else? Focus Chi requests. Yeah. You can send us your Focus Chi requests via the Discord. We uh, we didn't send Graham from Grimerica any last week. Mm-hmm. I was holding back. I need all the Chi I can... Uh, you can muster. Yeah. Well, uh, I listened to the latest Grimerica, and Graham's taken a turn south. Really? With, oh, the, no. with the COVIDs, yeah. In what way? Uh, it sounds horrific. Really? It sounds absolutely horrific. It was it was hilarious, really. Darren was just uh, brutally ripping him. Why? Why? Because he, he just thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> like, Graham's got COVID. They're in the same car together for, like, 12 hours or something. Right. <laughs> and uh, Darren was... <laughs> Darren was saying, you're going to be the guy in the video. He's like, I wish I'd taken the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe we should send Graham some focus cheat. In fact, I messaged him. Uh, where are we? I found, I, uh, what did I send him on the old uh, telegrams? Let me just pull this up. Where is he? Uh, <laughs> I said, uh, sending good vibes and focus cheat energy. Get well soon, Graham. And uh, he replied, Yep. Help me slay the Chinese in my dream battles tonight. <laughs> so maybe we should. Yeah. Maybe we should send some, some focus chi. You ready? All right, we're going to do that now. Well, you're taking forever. Oh, no, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I can't find it. I can <laughs> right. find it on the desktop. I can't find it on my phone. I'm sorry. Okay, Graham, this is for you. Eyes down looking. <laughs> You've had your eyes open. I'm sort of like I have things. You know, when I play these jingles, uh-huh. most of that is giving me time. It's, I'm buying time for like what we're doing I'm next and looking at the notes and stuff. I imagine that your role in this podcast <laughs> is quite stressful. Well, it's not stressful so much. It's just that there's a lot to think about. I don't have a very. I have like a forty watt light bulb up here, you know, <laughs> and I'm trying to do a lot of things. And uh, it doesn't always work. <laughs> so I need all the help I can get. It's like therapy. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, yeah, focus G. I think we covered all the housekeeping pretty much. Right, okay. Um, well, what's the best way to become a producer? 
Toss, coins. Toss us a Toss fucking coin. Toss in our general direction. Exactly. Toss us a fucking coin. Toss a coin to your witcher. Oh, Do it for the lads. 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 Oh, because... Oh, we're northern and we're bloody miserable oh, and the weather's fucking shit. Only you, eaves- only you eavesdroppers out there can... Save Plopland. Save Plopland. So we need your help. But, um, go to theimishinquisition.com and uh, you find the, the PayPal donate button there. You can give us a one-off, sign up for a monthly recurring sustaining donation. Mm. Donations above the level of £50 grant you executive producer status. Yes. Which looks great on the old curriculum vitae. And LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn have completely fucking dominated that sort of uh, space on the internet, haven't they? What's like pimping yourself? Yeah, well, like uh, corporate whoring. <laughs> it's a quite a unique uh, thing. I don't. Yeah, I can't think of anything else. I mean, you can like upload CVs to lots of different websites, like Indeed. You can and you, you can upload a CV, but you, it's not actually your. It's kind of it's almost a social media, isn't it? Well, for a CV. Yeah, they're sort of straddling the line, aren't they, between yeah. social media and uh, dirty bastards. Yeah. We've lost our Amish, Amish Ben again. He's catching up with emails once more. <laughs> I was just looking at what episode eight was. I think it was uh, something to do with cartels. What is? I didn't catch Episode that. eight. Oh, right. Episode eight was uh, lightsabers, wedding planning, and Mormon versus cartel turf wars. Oh, that was about, um, oh, who's the guy who ran for president? A uh, Republican. Oh, yeah. He's a Mormon. Mitt yeah. Romney. Yeah. Yeah, his family was, like, fighting turf wars with the cartel in Mexico. They all had to move to Mexico because the United yeah. States outlawed bigamy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they had to go down there so they could have their many wives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've watched, I'm pretty sure I've watched something about that. Not necessarily about Mitt Romney, but some of the families. Yeah. Yeah, it's curious. Curiouser and curiouser. Mm. Anyway, let's uh, let's thank the producers for episode 203. I think it's time. It's time to big up the man Dems. Yo. Who have we got? We've got uh, Preston Garuda, Helen from Berkshire, Nomi Nosnodge, Lee and Rick from The Big Conspire, Mostly Spooky, Bunyan Nut, Slicko, and multiple anonymous producers. Thank you. Ooh. So amazing. They are. Yeah. So... Amazing in their love. It's a miracle. Literally. The best mate. The dwarf. The carrots. The grape. The homophobe. The winds. The asthma. The corrupt cunt. The number 11. The blind man. The fallen on the horizon. The cripple and the mother of... An old friend is here. From hell. Leon. Delightful. Yeah, thanks for your support for another week. Mm. Dead easy to get involved. Uh, Discord's the best way. Apologies if I forget to mention people. It's a lot to sort of keep track on of during the week. Cause, Discord, uh, yeah, it's getting uh, a little busier, isn't it? Well, it's not just Discord. It's I try and keep it... Across them all? Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, as much as it would help if everyone used the Discord, <laughs> I do try and keep tabs on mm. IG Messenger and Facebook Messenger and, and everything else, but... Yeah, it would be easier if uh, if everyone used the Discord as the main channel. I think it, that it will come to the point where that has to be it because of time. I think that's the idea. 
Okay. Yeah, I think it will have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, your watch is... Is it your watch? I'm turning it off. It's, it's, it's Amish Ben's watch. It always I, is. My watch. I'm not wearing it. Can't be from 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 via the pipes. <laughs> through the internet pipes, surely. I'll just push it over there. Oh, we got a... Uh, I've just remembered... <laughs> just after housekeeping, I've just remembered we got a uh, some well wishes from Mark from IT. Oh. I saw him yesterday in the, in the flesh, and he was asking about the podcast and how it was going, and he still listens and, oh. you know... Good for you, Mark. Good for you. Big him up. To the man, Dem Joe. You want to big him up? I don't know. It's a bit late, isn't it? We're out of of the big up zone. It's time to big up the man, Dems. Yo. Yeah. So honoured. I'm Dem, really. You know. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. The live Dems. That's nice to hear, because he's been listening for a long time, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sticking in there. Yeah, God help you. Yeah. don't know how you do it. I don't know how you listen every week to this. Have we got uh, any people who've started from the start again? That was a, there was a few <laughs> astronauts, weren't there? If we have, they haven't, they haven't made themselves known. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't made what it about, through. What about the guy who's just come into the server from the other side of the planet? I can't remember his name. Do you want me to look up that the name? The dark side of the moon. Bunyanut. Yeah, is it Bunyanut, the guy from Australia? It might be. Might be. I don't know. I don't know. He, he, he said it's his new favourite podcast. So if he hasn't gone oh. back to the beginning, it can't be his favourite podcast, can it? No. We shall see. Lay let yourself us. before us. <laughs> let us know in the Discord. Yeah. Right. Tell us. Let's get on with it. Ooh. COVID 19. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass from hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mode like. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Anal swab tests in the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. Because I'm getting bored and want to have fun. I can't serve you if you're not wearing a face mask. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. Epic dub. I mean, quite a lot this week, and it's all happened in the last sort of few days, really. Really? Yeah, even today. Um, interesting, you know, Jenny Harris. She was the, um, I think she was deputy chief medical officer. And Same then... Way. Sorry? CMO. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I was like, you said it before. I yeah, mute. deputy CMO. Uh, and then, you know, they disbanded Public Health England and they've come up with this new uh, this new agency. What's it called? The uh, UK... Security Health. UK Health Security Agency, it's called. She's CEO of that now. They made a new role for a big promotion. What? What's it called again? Uh, UK Health Security Agency. That's, that's got a different connotation to... Uh... Public Health England. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, well, we're entering a biosecurity state. That's what we've been saying for over a year. Papieren, bitte. Our bat, macht frei. Yeah, it's fucking... macht frei, you mean. It's fucking Orwellian, but, you know, it's all right. Just people let them do it, they'll do it. Anyway, she was on uh, Trevor Phillips on Sky News this morning. Um, putting a marker down early before the winter for the twindemic. Oh. 
Well, we should be worried about flu each winter. I think people still don't realise it can be a fatal disease. Where recent studies suggest that uh, uh, about 25% of us don't actually understand that. Um, and not on average, over the last five years, about 11,000 people have, have died uh, with flu-related uh, uh, Obviously, discounting last year because no one, fucking no one died of flu. But anyway, carrying on. Uh, conditions. Um, but I think the important thing about this winter is uh, we are likely to see flu for the first time in, in any real numbers co-circulating with COVID. So the risks of catching both together uh, are still remain. Um, and if you do that, then uh, early evidence suggests that you are twice as likely to die uh, from having two together than just having COVID alone. So I think it's an uncertain winter ahead. That's not a prediction. It's an uncertain uh, feature. Uh, but we do know that flu uh, um, cases have been lower in the previous years. So immunity and the strain types are a little more uncertain. Twice as likely. You're twice as likely to die. Right. I would have thought it would have been a massive multiplier if you got both at the same time. No, if you get two deadly diseases, surely be, you'd be more than twice as likely to die. I don't know. they are. <laughs> COVID and flu. COVID and leprosy. Well, we're I talking about COVID and flu. So, <clears throat> are you saying that uh, they're saying that they're saying it's deadly, but then only saying it you're twice as likely to die? Is that what you mean? You're going from a low number to a slightly higher number in that. Even well, it if depends. You're saying twice as likely, aren't you? So it goes from 0.05 to 1%. 0.1. Well, that's the other angle. I mean, 0.1. your chances of dying of COVID are fucking minuscule anyway, unless you're in your 80s. Yeah. Um, but no, I just would have thought having two diseases at the same time would have a multiplier effect if you're old and frail. I don't know. I mean, is it, doesn't, it, is it not common sense? I don't know. That would make it be more than twice as well. Maybe I'm just over egging the pudding, but surely having two diseases is more than double, it's, it's more than twice the risk. Having two uh, lethal diseases, but whatever. <laughs> it's just the messaging, isn't it? They're getting it out early. You know, we're just yeah. into October now. And what do you think, Ben? What's going to happen with the flu? You're predicting uh, not a lot, aren't you? <laughs> I'm still not travelling as much as we uh, as we used to. Um, yeah, I, d- I don't think it'll be like a, a massive, massive flu season. And they're talking about having multiple strains flying around. I mean, the, there's always going to be one prevalent strain, but there's always multiple strains flying around. That's why your your flu vaccine every year, if you're eligible for one, is um, multivalent. You've got more than one strain. You know, you get quadrivalent ones now with four strains in. H1N1's been in the flu flu vaccine for years since since it originated um, back in swine flu, 2008, 2009. And that's been pretty prevalent since then. COVID's probably going to do the same thing in terms of respiratory illnesses. It'll be just about for ages. I know that's what people are saying anyway. Without uh, the risk of sounding blunt, you would imagine that a lot of the dead wood has gone. 
Yeah. That the amount of vulnerable people around, because we've had this massive uh, eye-watering pandemic which shut the entire world down, there shouldn't be, um, there shouldn't really be many vulnerable people left. I suppose more people become vulnerable as they age, so you're getting more more people in that bracket. Yeah, yeah, but they're, they're telling us we've lost a hundred and sixty thousand or something in eighteen months. If you look at um, not a, if not you look a lot at of people, if you look at ex- excess mortality over time, if you have a, a high year, it's always followed by a low year for this reason. It, it's like a sine wave. If you have a really bad flu season, it's generally like we did in seventeen eighteen. It's generally followed by a mild season, and part of the rationale for that, according to the epidemiologists, is there are fewer vulnerable people. They were taken the year before, so there's less people vulnerable to to, to go the year after. So I mean, that's, that makes sense. That's one reason why I would sort of agree with you that we might have a, a milder flu season because. If we go off what everyone's been, the news and the media has been telling us for the last eighteen months, there should be a lot less vulnerable people or susceptible people for the flu. Can we just mark this down, Matt. That um, Phil and I are agreeing on a health issue. <laughs> it's probably one <laughs> chalk one up. <laughs> I don't. I'm not. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anyone can predict, can they? Um, I, you've got to balance that out. With uh, like what you said, everyone's been staying inside. Mm. We're social animals, and we've evolved to have a certain amount of contact, personal contact, within probably a tribe of about two hundred close contacts. Mm. Thinking sure. about Dunbar's number <laughs> and that sort of stuff, we're used to having a lot of physical contact. We're incredibly social animals. So mm. when you play this experiment that we have for the last eighteen months where you restrict people's social contacts recklessly without even thinking about the long-term implications, this could have a serious backlash with uh, not just the flu, but uh, respiratory syncytial virus as well, which is worse for kids. Mm. So it's about we don't know how it's all going to balance out, do we? We just have to wait and see. No, wait for the numbers, crunch the numbers after the fact. <clears throat> Hope for the best. <laughs> um, there was another interesting story came out recently um, about, do you remember in, oh, I'm not sure when it was, was it August? When the JCVI decided not to recommend vaccines for 12 to 15 year olds. And then the government said they threw it to the CMO, Chris Whitty, yeah. to overrule them. And I remember saying on this podcast, it's nailed on, he'll go for it. Yeah, he did. Um well, mm. according to the JCVI's code, they um, release their minutes of their meetings within six weeks. Mm. Mm. Um, they haven't released the me- minutes for this meeting. Mm. Someone put a, free- a FOIA request into the government, and the government have denied the freedom of information request. Wow. Ooh. That's so dodgy, isn't it? When like people it are is. sort of like clamouring for... You wonder why I'm sceptical. Why, why, sorry, when people are sort of clamouring for... Transparency. Yeah, and they do stuff like that, then, you know. And they may be doing it with the best of intentions. We want to get on our vaccination. But I don't, I'm not a fucking child. Treat me like a fucking adult. Mm-hmm. And it plays with the informed consent, mm-hmm. doesn't it? 
How yeah. can people give informed consent if the government's purposefully withholding information, which, yeah. which allows you to make a, a decision? I mean, I'm, I don't it have could, kids in that age. all that brawl. It could but have been like I that, might, um, <laughs> that <laughs> Paris Council meeting. <laughs> I bet you there was um, a disagreement between um, Savage and the, the school secretary that's been sacked, education minister. Williamson. Yeah. Gavin. Well, they weren't in it. It's the JCVI uh, meeting minutes. Maybe they kind of said that they wanted it minuted, that they didn't want it to pass it on or something. I don't know. It, sh- it should be the discussion <coughs> of the evidence and why we're going to recommend or not recommend this. Um, well, they didn't procedure. recommend it, did they? Yeah, and it would have been the discussing what are the pros and cons. Yeah, it's the individual risk, isn't it? Yeah, and it's uh, it's a very mm. uh, fine decision for, well, it's not for in my eyes, but some people uh, it's, it's finely balanced when it comes to 12 to 15-year-olds. Mm. They should definitely have released those minutes. If that's what they do every six weeks, they should have yeah. done it. They should certainly have done it after a freedom of information re- request, and that smacks of the increasing perceived level of corruption mm. in high office. The uh, is terrible. They haven't released any minutes. Uh, the last meeting that they did release minutes for was from the 21st of February this year. Wow. The secretary has COVID. It was? The secretary of the, <laughs> of the meeting. <laughs> Possibly. Long COVID. Mm. They've not uh, released anything since 24th of February. So. 21st was the last meeting that they released minutes of. Oh, right. That's, that is odd. The government released a statement. I didn't print it out because it's the usual waffle. But the gist, the gist of the government station uh, statement was, we we will release the minutes when they're ready. God, oh, when, they're, when they're ready, we'll release them. Got to go through with a fine-tooth comb, probably. Yeah. They usually release um, a raw like a, a draft minutes and then mm. it will be edited within the six weeks and then it will be polished up and tidied and then they'll re-release a, a whatever, a final version of the minutes. But yeah, nothing from them. So whatever. Uh, Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Lots of news out of Scandinavia of them uh, falling out with Moderna. This one's regarding Finland, I think. Finland paused the use of Moderna's COVID vaccine for younger males on Thursday. It comes after reports of a rare cardiovascular side effect, myocarditis. Finnish officials said they would instead give Pfizer's vaccine to men born in 1991 and later. The country currently offers shots to people aged 12 and over. Both Sweden and Denmark limited the use of Moderna on Wednesday for all young adults and children. They cited the same unpublished Nordic study as Finland. Sweden's lead epidemiologist, Anders Tegnell. It is, as I said, a very rare side effect we're talking about. Even if one has received the Moderna vaccine, almost all the cases appear after a few weeks following vaccination. And after one month, one doesn't see this problem at all. Another Scandinavian country, Norway, recommended this week that men under the age of 30 choose the Pfizer vaccine. 
The Finnish Health Institute said the report would be published within a couple of weeks and that the data had been sent to the European Medicines Agency for further assessment. The EMA found in July that such inflammatory heart conditions could occur in very rare cases following vaccination with spike vax or the Pfizer jab in younger men after the second dose. A Moderna spokesperson said late Wednesday it was aware of the decision made by Sweden and Denmark. The drug maker said the cases were typically mild. Hmm. and indi- This is Moderna speaking. It's typically <laughs> mild. By the way, damage to the heart, the heart doesn't recover. Mm. Like the liver. Mm-hmm. Once your heart's damaged, that's scarred. it. It's scarred, yeah. Individuals usually recovered within a short time frame usually. following standard treatment and rest, adding that the risk of myocarditis is substantially increased for those who get COVID with vaccination the best way to protect against this. Um, one thing that's interesting is the, um, I don't know if it was Tegnell, uh, the, the report said um, that these side effects are also found after the second dose of Pfizer. Hmm. And we are not authorizing our kids to have more than one dose. Mm-hmm. It's one dose for twelve to fifteen year olds in the UK. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, I remember from reading months and months ago, the Moderna vaccine dose is double that of the Pfizer. Um. There's twice as much of the uh, nanolipid particles in the Moderna dose mm. as the Pfizer. So you give twice. So it makes sense that if if you give twice the dose in Moderna, you're going to have roughly the same level of side effects, myocarditis, as someone who having two doses of the Pfizer. Mm. Seems to be a, a not. A, I can't, you can't say cause, causality, but it seems to be a correlation there. Mm. But yeah, um, Iceland today they've announced all the Scandi countries seems. Mm-hmm. And I, I seem to remember they were the first to um, stop using AstraZeneca. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So they seem to be on the ball mm-hmm. more than some other um, health agents, security agencies <laughs> when it comes to side effects. Yeah. You know. What annoys me is that if, if people go to VAERS or if people point out the data in VAERS or um, the yellow card system, and the, um, the the sort of um, vaccine enthusiasts will say, well, this bit's self-reported and this bit's, you know, there's no correlations, no causation. You can't rely on this. Right, great. So our, our basically our early warning system is not fit for purpose. That's what you're telling me. Mm. Anyway, I, I don't like doing all this serious stuff, but I feel like it has to be said sometimes. I like Scandinavia. Yeah, they seem to have the head screwed on, especially in Sweden. Yeah. I'd like to go there on holiday. Yeah, they'll, I'm sure they'll let you in. Yeah, I think it will. Yeah, I'll ask. I'll ask him. I've uh, spoke to a couple of uh, ICU nurses this week. Boots on the ground. Boots on the ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At our local hospital and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So. Just trying to get a bit of a tapping for information. Yeah. Seems that so I was asking about therapeutics, where we're up to on therapeutics, you know. Are we doing Tosalizumab yet or what? Tosalizumab. Are, are we still on Remde- and it's Remdesivir? Remdesivir. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the WHO website, um, they don't recommend Remdesivir, Remdesivir for the treatment of COVID. Okay. No. Not good for your kidneys or your liver. <laughs> 
Let's say if you look at the side effect profile for remdesivir, it's <coughs> uh, it's not good. Right. And funnily enough, a lot of the earlier on in the pandemic, there was these reports of uh, multi-organ failure, livers and kidneys. Okay. Nothing to see there, but you know, something to keep an eye on. But yeah, we're not uh, we're not using anything other than no therapeutics whatsoever. Just What's that, new, oxygen. Uh, that new pill? Molnupiravir. Oh, Is that the one, yeah? Yeah. Rolls off the tongue. Put, I, put but made by Merck. That's the one, yeah. Ivan yeah. Merktin, they should have called it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that. The, um, there was the, the that Japanese institute. Is it the Satoshi? Oh, that's Bitcoin. There's a, there's a Japanese <laughs> um, health institute that wants to do um, uh, double-blind placebo on ivermectin. Uh, there's four authors. Uh, one of the co-authors is the guy who won the Nobel Prize for finding ivermectin, discovering yeah. it. And um, they have to ask permission from Merck. And they said, nah, no, we're not doing any clinical trials on ivermectin. No double-blind placebos. But we do yeah. have molnupiravir, oh, which is yeah. new. And, you know, it's uh, £700 a course. Okay, no. Rather than ivermectin, which is $2. Yeah. So who knows? Who knows if it'll work or not? Early results seem promising. It's crazy, that, isn't it? They can get away with that. It's a racket, isn't it? Mm. It's all about money. It's not about healthcare. Uh, oh, I asked. Uh, I asked uh, one of the ICU nurses if she's taking vitamin D. Oh yeah, and she was in the kitchen. She said, "Yep, I've got it here." All oh, right. Okay. I said, "What are you on?" She had four thousand IU's a day. Oh, she listens. Yes. Well, she's getting advice. Good advice from somewhere. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So uh, yeah, definitely uh, worth taking. I would say. Hmm. Yeah, they're struggling. She said they'd lost some staff that had had enough. Yeah, imagine wearing that. Did they have yeah, to wear PPE all day? It depends, and mm. it depends what PPA. Yeah, they have to have sort of fitting tests for different ones, and if right. the, if the standard stuff doesn't fit, they have to have a different suit. And it, mm. some of them are uh, so they're struggling. They can't recruit. No, <laughs> they're offering forty pounds an hour. You know, five five hundred a day. Brain. 100,000 is that? Depends how many shifts you do. I mean, there's tons of overtime. Yeah. I mean, it's it's for, for your standard 37 hours a week, it's about 80 grand a year. Yeah. If you do four days, then it's over 100 grand a year. That's where all that extra um, social care money's going then, isn't it? To pay for, I imagine. Well, maybe if we just treated them a bit better in the first place, we wouldn't be having mass exoduses. What do you mean of the nurses? Yeah, the staff. Oh. Look after your staff. They do well prior to this anyway. Most of them were burnt out because they were working like ridiculous um, staff to patient ratios and understaffed anyway. Can't recruit to nursing, and the pay has been um, sort of restrained. The right word it was frozen for a while, wasn't it? In, from twenty ten, yeah. But basically, it's like you know, if you listen to the union, it's it's sort of a, you know. I think like ten percent, thirty percent under where it would have been basically, mm. normally. But anyway, uh, what else? Oh, there was an interesting story. Um, oh, where was it from? It was from the Australian, I think. Chinese labs in Wuhan 
purchased an increased quantity of coronavirus testing equipment several months before <laughs> the first virus case was reported to the World Health Organization in December 19. Nothing to see here. According to a new report, uh, quotes, You can see across the trend that starting in May all the way through to December, you see a massive increase in PCR procurement data. Some of this may be benign, but taken together... It gives us a trend that comprehensively challenges the official narrative that the pandemic started in December. Cybersecurity analyst Robert Potter, who recovered the data. Uh, it also shows there's a, a significant amount of procurement from the government level, the PLA, that's the um, uh, People's Liberation Army, and the Centre for Disease that. Control, as well as sensitive laboratories that are in Hubei province. Uh, former director of U.S. National Intelligence John Ratcliffe also told the news outlet, outlet that the increased purchase of PCR equipment in Wuhan in 2019 is significant, and I quote, I think there's more than just smoke here. I think there's fire from a whole bunch of different sources, he said. You're not talking, you're not talking about ranch sauce. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be another compelling piece of evidence. <laughs> if you need more... I don't need more. <laughs> yeah, so fishy. Quite mm. fishy, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that links back to that theory, doesn't it, about them knowing about it and the um, Armed Forces Games. World Military Games? Yeah. In, was it in uh, Canada? Yeah, in, the, in the summer, I can't remember. No, I, I think um, Ian Lyons went. No, it was in Wuhan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> Ian Lyons went to one in Canada. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, yeah, it's linked to that, isn't it? And about them deliberately spreading it. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Another story. Isolate if you have COVID symptoms, but negative PCR, says local health official. People. That was, that was Amish Ben, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. People <laughs> should self-isolate if they have COVID-19 symptoms, even if they have a negative PCR test result, according to a regional public health official, after a number of cases where people tested positive using lateral flow tests but they're negative with a PCR. Anomalies have been reported by people in the southwest, southwest England over the past week, with one public health official saying they were aware of a high number of inconsistent test results. Yeah, because, you know, well, I suppose if you did a, a positive lateral flow and then you wanted to test <laughs> negative on the PCR, you, you could just pretend to shove the thing in your mouth, couldn't you? Yeah, they shoved in by by someone. Well, I did when I when I had mine. Did you? Well, I, I, yeah. I've always gone to a drive-through one, and uh... I've, had, I've had two. And the there was a walking one where I was I had to do it myself, and you have a mirror and stuff. It's it's just all set up. It's weird. I'm not sure it was official. Um, <laughs> the, uh... Was it an anal swab test? Was it a glory yeah. hole? Oh, have you been <laughs> anal swab test? <laughs> and the other one was a drive-through one. I wound down my window a bit, and she. Shoved it down my throat. She did it for you at the drive-thru one? Yeah. Yeah. And I got a sticker at the end of it. Did you get a lollipop? Yeah. Did you get a lollipop? It's now. Little, little rainbow. I didn't get a lollipop. No, that's... Uh, oh. There's no budget for that, jeez. I'm sure there is. They spent over 400 billion pounds <laughs> on it. Hey, I've got a sticker, all right? Oh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the UK Health Security Agency, oh my God. which replaced Public Health England at the start of October, said it did not believe there was a problem with any testing kits and added that there was no evidence of a new variant. <laughs> so. Scary. 
So there's no var- the variance thing's gone quiet, hasn't it? This thing must be still be popping up with new variants, surely. There's no need. There's no need for any new variants yet. The no. new variant will oh, come right. when it's needed. In Christmas. Yes. There's when new Christmas is Lambda variants, but um, no one's talking about them at the moment. Do you remember last year when uh, they promised us Christmas and then Christmas was cancelled? Yes, I remember when they said three weeks to flatten the sombrero. That was so depressing, wasn't it, when they did that? Not That's think? definitely going to be a T-shirt slogan. And it should be now, three weeks to flatten the cake. <laughs> yeah, it should, it should be on the uh, Amish loot chest, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we could have, like, day 586 of flattening the curve. <laughs> yeah. That would be a good T-shirt. It could be, like, a... a uh, I think three weeks. You know, like a, a get fit slogan. Three weeks to flatten the curve. Just like don't eat anything and go to the gym every hour. <laughs> Maybe put in the Discord if you'd like to purchase a three weeks to flatten the curve t shirt or face mask. Yeah, we'll make one. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, Ben. All right. So it's like even if you if you're ill, what was the list of symptoms from the Zoe app for COVID? It was everything. Yeah, endless. So if you have symptoms. They're saying if you have symptoms, and although you test negative, you should still self-isolate the same. So it's pointless, isn't it? The whole testing thing's pointless, except to count numbers. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, when, how does this end? That's when, the they say, when they say, we're not testing anymore. Don't it ends when you, walk, you get into hospital and say, oh, my arm's a bit numb, and you get tested for gangrene, and it's <laughs> negative, but they cut it off anyway. <laughs> Just to be safe. <laughs> and then they say you're having a heart attack. Yeah. yeah. By the way, you don't get an arrow like. Fair enough. Is that it? Have we shocked you into silence? Well, I was just think, thinking. I don't think, I can't like think of anything to say. Okay. It's like. <laughs> it's, so, it's so dark. It's just going on and on and on, isn't it? Yeah. But, I mean, I, what's it like? Well, does anybody watch the news? No. No. Yeah, all of it. Every channel. I don't watch any of it, so I don't really no. know. I don't know what the, uh, um, you know, the Atmos. Well, we've like. been playing some bits, haven't we? Uh, double, tw- you're twice as likely to die yeah, if you get the nice. flu and the the vids. Yeah, I went I went to church today for the first time in 18 months. I know you did. Um had a boots on the ground report uh, yeah. from the church, <laughs> and there was—I was—I think I was—it was me and one other person not wearing a mask. What? Yeah. Ooh. And that was it. Really? Yeah. There was like hardly anyone wearing masks last time I went. They were all. They, most people were wearing them. Oh, God. I was just like stood there going, "Oh God." My missus wasn't wearing, wearing one, was she? Yeah. Really? Yeah. In church? Pretty sure, yeah. Well, why didn't she wear one when she's with me? Well, you see, that's why. <laughs> and was... Oh, You're no. her defender. You don't know Julius, do you? Nah. Like, last time I went, there was me and the missus. There was Julius and his mum, Archie and his mum. Yeah. None of the mums and dads wearing masks. Yeah, I know. It's the older... Basically, it was the older people. It was quite an older... Congregation, gosh! Um, and I noticed some people putting them on to go to the communion. Yeah, um, everyone had them on. 
Oh my god, that's depressing. So everyone had a mask on except for for me and this <laughs> this lady at the front, and that was it basically. And then, um, <clears throat> but I heard my mum go, "We don't need to wear masks anymore." I don't know why I'm wearing mine. She took her heads off. Good. Um, but everyone else had it on. Do you think the mandate will come back in the winter? You, I, if the case the cases go up a lot, I uh, think it's in the plan B planning. Yeah, it will be along with vaccine passports. I uh, I yeah. re- I responded to the consultation today. Where's that? Oh, you won't hear about it. Oh, fuck you now. <laughs> there's, a, there's a government consultation ongoing about vaccine passports in Plan B. Mm. So I, I responded to it and uh, just said, I think, answered pretty much everything. Every uh, box that I could write in said these requirements have no place in a liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done my bit. That's all you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we might have a guest. I, I've, I'm not too. Ma- I've made contact yet, but um, might have a guest. Hopefully, uh, in the not too distant future, to tell us all about the what, what, what uh, why's and wherefores vaccine passports. Is it Lord Sumption? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's a good. Yeah, it depends on the cases, I guess, doesn't it? But it's, yeah. it's all kids. All these mm. cases we're seeing every day, it's all because it's the force, they're forcing high school kids to get tested. Are they? Mm. Yeah. Oh, right, get okay. tested at high school, don't they? I don't know. It's not, uh, I don't think it's, they do uh, a graph and it'll give you the um, breakdown of the age cohorts, it's the, the positive tests for the weeks. And it's all the high school kids. Right. Um, like the, high, the lower age groups is flat. Right. Absolutely flat, the higher age groups, uh, 70s and over. Really? Yeah, it's all kids and um, people our age. Right. Late 20s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Speak for yourself. I'm barely out of my teens. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. What do you want to do? Do you want to move on and do some other news? Uh, you've got a bit of time left. Yeah. Bojo's on holiday, isn't he, this week? Oh, yeah. He's uh, jetted off, hasn't he? Come to the Maldives. Maldives. Is it Maldives? Yeah. Marbella. I think so. Marbella. Oh, Marbella, sorry. I read a Marbella. Moscow. Do you <laughs> think, I don't think he, this Marbella. Do you think he had a... Anal swab test. When he got there? No. <laughs> I don't imagine he needed to wear, uh, wear a face mask on Air Force PM, whoever it is. Does he have do this? Uh, they do have... There is an RAF plane, isn't there, that they use... <clears throat> there's a big a thing about Cessna. it. Yeah, there was uh, a thing about yeah, yeah. a hoo ha. Um, <laughs> there's a, a tiny plane. Yeah, right. did you see his um, speech at the party conference? Mm, I just, I've no. just seen no. I've just seen something about him <coughs> saying that it's not his job to sort out the supply chain stuff. Right, That's let the market decide. Yeah, basically, <laughs> um, it was quite. Um, Interesting speech. Uh, this bit pricked my ears. Beautiful it is. Oh, it's a bit quiet. Last untouched moorland, hills and broadleaf forests. We are going to rewild parts of the country and consecrate a total of 30% to nature. We're planting tens of millions of trees. Can we catch that? Rewilding. Consecrate. Consecrate 30% of the country. Yeah, but... Um... 
that is this not one of those things? I mean, really, we live in like urban centres anyway. How much of the country is wild anyway? I don't know. Probably 30%. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it's more than 30%. It's the language that's important. Oh, it'll be, yeah, yeah, it will yeah. be. It'll be like 41%. And he'll be saying, we're going to keep 30% to rewild. And, and what he's actually saying is we're going to build cheap housing on 11% of the countryside. Um, I think it's what Phil said, though, isn't it? It's basically just taking word for word. It's language straight out of United Nations Agenda 2030. Yeah. Rewilding. I've talked about it for over a year. 2030 now. Keep pushing it back, Benny. No, we've got it to be done by by uh, 2030. Ah, oh, right. Ah, oh, yeah. they'll never get it done by 2030. No, but it will get done. They're, they're, it's like the Build Back Better. It's 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 part of the uh, nomenclature that we've been talking about for years, and they're actually using the same terms. They're using the real terms are rewilding. Yeah, that's the scary thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of the pivot into climate change. And what else do they say? These otters are returning to rivers from which they've been absent for Pause. decades. There's otters in our rivers. Do you know that? <laughs> There's otters in yeah. the River Ribble. You can go and see them at yeah, the Pemberton Bridge. Wow. Yeah. Beavers that have not been seen on some rivers since Tudor times, massacred for their pelts and now back. And if that... Be- Surely somebody's put reintroduced beavers. Yes, Be- beavers just... Be that's what I mean. It's not like they've just appeared again. <laughs> I think otters. I don't think otters. Thought, oh, this is nice. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think otters have always been around, but they're actually just you know going into more places. Yeah. You know what I mean? Continue. Isn't conservatism? Oh. Wild my friends, I don't know what is. Oh? Build back beaver, I say. Build back beaver. I know that. Build back beaver. That's yeah. It's better than uh, build back butter. <laughs> Or, or, build back batter. Build back batter. He's opening the chips, fish and chips. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see, but I know which one. Yeah. I believe What a clown. I mean, I know that's an old trope. Yeah, don't call him Bojo the clown for nothing. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, he's on board. He's on board with the agenda. He got a nice, uh, quite a funny dig in at Jeremy Corbyn. Early on. I mean, he's, he was, how long ago is it since he's left? Uh, the first time, the first time since uh, so many of you worked to defy the sceptics by winning councils and communities that Conservatives have never won in before, such as Hartlepool. And in fact, it's the first time since the general election of 2019 when we finally sent that corduroyed communist cosmonaut <laughs> into orbit where he belongs. Wow, a bit below the belt, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. He never did. Corbyn never call him like an idiot or a buffoon. Who hasn't called him? So. Who hasn't called him a buffoon? Mm. Clearly, is. <laughs> say what you say. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's a shame that they'll uh, they're probably going to have another hundred years of government. Well, you know, it's the opposition at the end of the day, isn't it? I know. That's no alternative. Starama. Yeah, it's a bit sort of, there isn't really enough. Plus, I think it's still divided, isn't it? What's the name of the, is it a woman who's the deputy? 
of the Labour Party. Angela Rayner. That's it, yeah. Uh, I think she's more of a uh, a hard okay. lefty, and he's a more of a, a blary new Labour. So right. I think the party is still quite divided in, in terms of what it wants to be. And what are the Lib Dems doing nowadays? <laughs> yeah, nothing. So, I mean... I know, right? But the thing is, with like Labour, then... the. Um, <coughs> surely from two elections because like even Ed Miliband was a little bit more left leaning wasn't he he was a Marxist um, not as much as the Corbyns but they've had two cracks at it and like been told haven't they no yeah so I think the, we need to figure it out they need to figure it out I should say at, the, at least they haven't got the Brexit thing Unless they resurrect that, because I mean that was the major stumbling block in the yeah. last election was the position on Brexit and trying to uh, have a redo on the referendum. Mm. Which was a but this is the thing about the Conservatives now. Have you bad heard, move? Have you heard of this leveling up agenda? Yeah. So like pumping money into Ooh. yeah, uh, basically Labour seats um, to see if you can sort of win votes and stuff. So. That'd be interesting to see if that has any effect. <sighs> that was pre-COVID. Mm. You know, that was when they run, won the election in 2019, was it? Yeah. They said, you know, we understand that you have have lent us your vote, mm. so we shall maybe pay a bit of attention to you. Exactly, yeah. You fucking surfs <laughs> up there in the frozen north. Yeah. Maybe well, we'll throw you a fucking bone here and there. Maybe a new shopping centre. Oh, fuck what? What else will keep these fucking plebs happy? A, sp- a spine to the uh, HS2, <laughs> very silly. Yeah. Put a bit of a new tarmac on the A1. Yeah. Uh, it's probably uh, not going to materialise. But, mm. you know, we shall see. I'm mm. happy to be proved wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the, there is a big problem with the in- infrastructure infrastructure spending per head. If you look at what's spent per head in down there, fucking London. Yeah, I know, yeah. You know, they spend something like 1,800 quid a head, and then if you go to, say, the northeast, they spend £400 a head. Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh, exacerbates the divide. Of course it does, yeah. But, you know, we're not unique. It'll be the same mm. in other countries. I'm sure in Germany, Munich, Berlin, mm-hmm. you know, all the investment, you know, the bulk of the investment goes into the big cities. Mm-hmm. I just, um, do you know, we were talking to, I've just had a flashback to our episode with Gary Arndt. Arndt. And we, yeah. were t- we were talking about this subject, and he made a great point in that what is unique about our country is London is the financial, political, and cultural capital. Mm. So, for example, in Germany, Berlin would be the political capital, and Munich's the capital of beer. <laughs> Oktoberfest. You know, other countries, they spread things out. Yeah. yeah. Whereas um, everything seems to... It's just fucking landing the fucking nothing, mate, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but is that not... What would not, you bring up north? Well, that's what they... Grey out racing. That's what they try to do, though, isn't it, with... Pies. New, <laughs> moving BBC to Salford and uh, Channel 4 went to Leeds, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, good, yeah, good moves. More, more of the same, mm. I would say. So culture will come from the north. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm alright with that. Look at music, Manchester yeah. and Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Even sport, all the all. Well, I don't know if it's still the same. I've not followed football for 
a long time, but a lot of the big clubs were from the northwest at one point. Well, they still, still are. are. Yeah. Man City, Man United, Liverpool, Accrington, Stanley, Everton, yeah. Oldham, mm. Rochdale, Bolton, Bolton, <laughs> Preston, Blackpool. <laughs> Preston Nobhead. Fleetwood. Fleetwood's in the Football League now. Yeah, yeah. Morecambe. Morecambe. AFC filed. <coughs> More. <coughs> Sorry. Morecambe. Don't say that. Yes. <laughs> Gosh. What an unfortunate name. It's almost as bad as Clit Hero. Oh, uh, yeah. Clitheroe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Clitheroe Town. Yeah. Clit Hero Town. Uh, yeah, so... Mm. 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 It's an interesting story from Singapore, famous totalitarian state. Oh, this is my story. Singapore has trialled patrol robots that blast warning, <laughs> warnings at people engaging in undesirable social behaviour. Demolition man. Adding to an arsenal of surveillance technology in the tightly controlled city-state that is fueling privacy concerns. From vast numbers of CCTV cameras to trials of lampposts kitted out with facial recognition tech, Singapore is seeing ex- an explosion of tools to track its inhabitants. Seems like Amish Ben's like idea of <laughs> utopia, that place, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, no chewing gum on the floor. No one leaves an unflushed toilet. It's great. <laughs> I've got, um, I got... You don't even know how to use the three shoeshells. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a little uh, clip of the robot going around bossing people about. <laughs> Please keep to four meter distancing. Please keep to five persons per group. Please keep to five persons per group. Oh. <laughs> Please be in order. Please be in order. Please be in order. Please move over. I can't get it. <clears throat> Please be something. I don't know. I, you have three seconds to comply. Yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of time before they put some sort of weapons on it, isn't it? You would have thought so. I'd like tear gas. Yeah, why not? Rubber bullets. Wow. Mm. Yeah, it'll go around and uh, tell people off for not social distancing or... Uh, oh, what's it saying on the fucking... Where's the article? On the, on the, uh, on the internet. Officials have long pushed a vision of a hyper-efficient, tech-driven, smart yeah. nation, but activists, activists say privacy has been sacrificed and people have little control over what happens to their data. Uh, Singapore is frequently criticised for curbing civil liberties and people are accustomed to tight controls, but there's still growing ease at intrusive tech. Mm. Uh, The robot on wheels with seven cameras issues public warnings to the public and detect undesirable social behaviour. Who decides what's undesirable? Yeah, that's that's what I was was thinking. Yeah, the dictator does. Yeah. Because he is a dictator, essentially. Uh, this includes smoking in prohibited areas, mm. improperly parking bicycles. <gasps> I've just done that back of your house. Yeah, <laughs> and breaching coronavirus social distancing rules. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, during a recent patrol, one of the Xavier robots wove its way through a housing estate and stopped in front of a group of elderly residents watching a chess match yeah. to break them up. Yeah. Five people maximum, please. Uh, please keep one meter distancing. <laughs> please keep to five persons per group. <laughs> the robotic voice blurred out as a camera on top of the machine trained its gaze on them. 
Uh, Franny Teo, a 34-year-old research assistant, was walking through the mall during the recent robot patrol trial. It reminds me of Robocop, <laughs> she said. It brings to mind a dystopian world of robots. I'm just a bit hesitant about that kind of concept. Yeah, why not? Why wouldn't you be? Five persons to a group! <laughs> Please respect social distancing! <coughs> and uh, if you do not comply... It will just stay there, and then it will send a message out to well, the enforcement. This is um, a, yeah, but then this is when it gets you. You, you think your social credit score would come into it because it'd be very easy to get your facial recognition or link it to your thing, link it to your whatever, and then you you know you'll get fined or you know you just just come just be taken out of your bank account. Yeah, we've removed three hundred Singapore credits from your online digital account. Yeah, exactly. How's it going to recognise you with a mask on there? If you're complying to a mask wearing, but not a social distancing, I think they can. Probably. Oh well, well, it'll just pick up your, uh, you know, your smartwatch signal. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. your scent, your scent, yeah, your yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe it'll just fucking follow you home. Why won't it just <laughs> follow you home? Yes, that's the thing, isn't it? Or maybe it's connected like to a robot. All the other CCTV cameras in Singapore, it can trace back where you've been all that day, all that week. Yeah. Trace yeah. your exact... Uh, oh, you've just gone into a shop. Right, where's his, where's his credit card deals? Say, Let's pull it there. It said something like it was like up there. I think we are kind of up there in terms of being the most surveilled country, but that's like a... Is it not like a, some kind of weird city-state, Singapore? Yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, Malaysia, isn't it? Bomber, Malaysia. I don't know. And... Um, it was saying that I think it's going from plans to go from, <coughs> so it's quite small for a country or, you know, a state, from something like 60-odd thousand cameras to 100,000 cameras on this island. So it's just wild. Yeah, strange. Strange vision of uh, what might be in our near future. Mm, I think it's coming, that kind of stuff, isn't it? Can't wait. If you comply, <laughs> yeah. Just turn a blind eye and just watch it happen from the sidelines. Don't get involved. Squid Game's been good. Squid Game? Oh, yeah. What's Absolutely. that? I've only watched the first, um, what, first episode. Yeah. What is it? Um, something like Battle Royale. Yeah, like people um, who are in debt get scooped up to play this game. To... Is it real or is it make-believe? It's make-believe. But it's uh, a commentary on society. It's very... It's very it's all on the same themes as Parasite, if you ever watched that film. Yeah. It's, a, it's not the same, it's the same country of origin. I don't think yes. it's any of the same production team. Right? No, it's the same. It's South Korea, isn't it? It's based in, basically. Yeah, it's good. I'm enjoying it so far. Early days, yeah. Mm, it's good. Isn't there a Brave New World uh, TV thing out at the minute? That was a while ago. Oh. Yeah, it got cancelled, I think, didn't it? Oh, did it? Mm. Uh, it wasn't particularly great. I didn't watch it. Mm. Fair enough. Uh, you said another, I think it was you, another story. God, I'm hot. Hot yeah. this week. He is 100 years old and barely able to stand on his own. Yet here in court, Josef S. Mm. is standing trial. On charges relating to his three years as an SS guard at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp, 
He does not believe he should be on trial. The defendant was asked if he had anything to say in response to the charges. He had no comment, but said through his lawyer that at the next court date he would tell us about his own life. Yeah. Managed to live for 100 years and evade justice. Do you think they've actually been looking for him? Yeah, what happened? Or what? Well, they they still acti- they still actively look for him, look for them. Yeah, they're still Nazi hunters. Yeah, right. So he's just evade. He's just evaded, has he? Well, I think it takes time to trace people. Yeah, seventy years. Well, yeah. Well, really? how many? Yeah, how many guards? How many guards and soldiers know. were there in the German army? Basically, well, it was like every. I imagine every able man was in the army, weren't they? Conscripted. Yeah. So it's a lot, isn't it? And then to go through the paperwork and people's names and if he's changed his name and then moved and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I mean, there was one, wasn't there? Why are you saying it's like there's an ulterior motive? No, not at all. No? All right. no? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I th- yeah, they're still, they're still actively look for people, basically, yeah. <coughs> there was one a couple of years ago, wasn't there? It was like 98 or something. It's like uh, kind of pointless, isn't it? It's like you've do, you've done the crime mm. and you've lived to a hundred years old. I mean, it seems. I suppose it's symbolic, isn't it? That That's what it is. It's symbolic. Yeah. To um, I mean, it's a failure, isn't it? Really, it's a failure that they've learned to get to a hundred years old and now they're prosecuting. I'd probably say it was a failure of the German state to not find these people. But I I don't know who's found him. It might have been the German state, but I doubt it. It's normally like the... Is it not like normally Mossad? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That go after these people, is it not? I don't think... It could be. That's that Al Al Pacino show, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. But it's like... We've got another one. It's based in... uh, This fucker made it to 100 years old. (laughs) We're going to fuck this guy up. You and me. (laughs) You and me. But, you know, it's um, based in truth, isn't it? There is, There were and is uh, Nazi hunters. I believe so, yeah. Like that. Is it not Alfred Adler, the famous one that they, they captured in Argentina and brought back to Israel to be put on trial? Was that his name? Could be. Sure. Pretty sure, yeah. And they, they, it was Mossad, they caught him and uh, managed to get him back to Israel to put on trial. If that's the right one, I think they might have done that. more left. Well, that's what they're saying, you know, it's running out, isn't it? Time, basically, to get people. There can't be many left. No, but imagine how many haven't been found. Imagine if, how many tens of thousands, maybe thousands that, work, that worked in those camps. Um, yeah, and uh, got away with it. I wonder, I wonder how he feels. I wonder mm. if he has guilt about that period. Not a hundred. Who? Not a hundred. He's probably. Ah, fuck it. Nah. Yeah. Do you not? Th- what about after the war? I don't know. This is the thing, isn't it? How uh, did they like? How did you rationalize that? Did they rationalize that? Because they just sort of went along yeah. with it, didn't they? Mm. They just went along with yeah. the dictates of the state. 
to uh, to carry out heinous crimes against humanity. I wonder once that's over and you've lost mm. whether there's any introspection there and you think, wow, how was I so easily manipulated to do those horrible things that I did? I don't there know. was a lot of suicides in people who thought that after immediate, well, immediately you know, 10 years after the war. You think? All right. Was it? I think so. I think it would have been, yeah. People who just couldn't live with themselves when they when they realised what was going on. Like you say, they, a lot of them would have been swept up in the in the policies in the in the, the times. I wonder how many people knew it was wrong and went along with it anyway. Loads. There'll still be loads of those people. You would think most people would have thought that, wouldn't they? Well, I think a lot would have been indoctrinated. <coughs> you know, with the the folk. What was it? The folkish. This rise to power of this great orator, mm. and he used a lot of German folklore and rhetoric and messaging and propaganda, Goebbels, all the rest of it. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure there was a large chunk who, who knew it was wrong and went along with it because they felt they had to or they didn't want to stand out. Yeah. I just think those people who knew it was wrong when they get to the other side... Wow, I just don't know where. I don't know how you can reconcile. I can have live, make peace with that. I know it's not a fair comparison, but you can draw parallels with with, with that in all aspects of life. People who, for instance, build tower blocks with no fire breaks, or don't don't build them to regs and dodgy regulators sign things off, and then you know, as we've seen previously recently. People have died as a result, and they're still fighting over it. And mm. you know, there doesn't seem to be—I've never seen any admission of guilt or concern for for those involved in that. And there's there's thousands and thousands of people impacted by by that still now that that aren't that they're stuck basically. That no one's stepping up to admit guilt and try and rectify it. I'm sure there are elements of compact mentalization coping strategies that people go through and, uh, to sort of uh, move these things into another part of the head so they can just get well, on with they'll, their go, they'll go to people like Matt so they can deal with it and that's probably not the right thing to do you need to face up to it if you've done something maliciously wrong that's led to the death of someone then you should feel bad about it for a long time <laughs> yeah yeah. Anyway, we're going to have to uh, rattle through soon because our guest is going to be here soon. Yeah. It's yeah. time to queer up the news. It- <laughs> <laughs> um, this is one of those... Uh, <laughs> ...news stories. Uh, this is from Queer News Tonight with Al Ferguson, one of my uh, regular haunts. Excellent. <laughs> Okay. Uh, God. A family and an LGBT collective in southeast Spain are demanding answers oh. and an apology <laughs> after a 19-year-old gay woman who visited a gynecologist over a menstrual condition was diagnosed with homosexuality. On Monday, the woman went to an appointment at the Arena Sofia Hospital in the city of Murcia. After being examined, she was given a piece of paper that included the line, quote, current illness 
homosexual, end quote. Wild, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit... I put that... Yeah. So go on. I was going to say, do you think they were thinking, uh, I'm having a bit of a slow day. <laughs> this will throw the cat amongst the pigeons. I'll write this down. Absolutely bonkers. What, yeah. can, what can I do for you, my dear? Oh, doctor, I'm not feeling too good. I have a temperature and uh, I feel under the weather. Oh, are you homosexual? Yeah. Yeah. Weird, isn't it? Yeah. Apparently, when I think I read that one. Is this one another one of mine? Dunno. Could be. You didn't get the clip. No, I don't get the clips. Man, wouldn't you love to be able to call off work because you're too homosexual? <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work for us, Gordon. It wouldn't too work for us. Too fabulous to get up in the morning. I can't do it. <laughs> so, is there a publicist? Yeah, I won't try that one with your boss. Might do. If it, hey, if That's, it's legal in, in southern Spain. Um, I was reading and they said that they, basically it's uh, like still like a cultural thing, you know. He's seen as a... In Spain, particularly. But in that part of Spain, they said. Right. They've seen older generations of gynecologists. The homophobic part. Basically, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I imagine it'll probably be related to the Catholic Church as well, won't it? You would have thought. Oh, good point. Are people diagnosed with being Anglican over there as well. <laughs> yeah. You're probably just committed, aren't you? The mother and daughter brought the matter to the attention of the local LGBT collective... Galactico, <laughs> which, has, which has lodged a formal complaint with Mercia's regional government. Mm. It sounds like a frigging Marvel villain, doesn't it? Galactico. Well, Galactico. I'm pretty sure that he's coming on that. That one, what's he called? The big giant one. Galactus, the planet, planet eater guy. I think, he, I think he's he had, the next one. He had a one. brief scene. There was a, a little scene of him doing something, probably in a planet, in um, What If. Oh. Serious episode seven or eight, I think. Right. And I thought, ooh, I, I recognise him from. <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the one. I, that's the only one, one I know. Favorite cartoon of youth, X Men. It's on. Yeah. Some, it's on Disney, isn't it? That yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I used to fancy. Um, which one? Cyclops. <laughs> Magneto. Um, oh, he's so magnety. Um, oh, Rogue. Gambi, obviously. Rogue, I think it was. Rogue, yeah. Oh, she can't touch you. You're yeah, no, that's useless. What, that's what was king. I think it was because she had gloves. Oh, well, now we're getting an insight. So we have a glove fetish for Amish mm. Matt. Especially between the ages of 12 and... Fourteen. What about if a gloved woman has a dessert spoon? <laughs> Ooh, uh-huh. Now you're talking my game. Do you <laughs> think Gambit should have had his own movie? What? Do you think Gambit should have had his own movie? Or it should have been at he least was, in some was, of the X-Men it, it was, Ben. This is something I've read about on the internet, and it was Channing Tatum was trying to get a Gambit movie made, and it just could, right. couldn't get it off the ground. Wow. Yeah, the best powers. Like turning cards into <laughs> bombs. Well, anything, anything he touched you could turn into a explosive. Yeah, just a deck of cards was handy. Yeah. Fifteen in the fifty-two in the clip and one in the hole. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> 
two in, two in the hole, plus the bridge rules card. <laughs> Gambit is going to make some bodies turn cold. <laughs> Don Kiddick. Yeah, Google the old Channing Tatum Gambit film. Yeah, I'm going to have a look. Never going to happen. Dead. No. 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 Oh, sorry. We just did uh, remember to not make mouth noises on the podcast as well. Isn't that the point? To make mouth noises? It'd be <coughs> no. quite a quiet podcast like... if we didn't make mouth noises. Ooh, that's, that's that kind of That makes me uncomfortable. There you go, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Lovely. Uh, there's a name for, for this condition. Yeah, misophonia. Oh, right, you've heard of it. Yeah. Is it uh, the man who mistake his woman for a hat? Is it in there? No, I don't think so. Someone mentioned it at work once. Right. I've never seen anyone with misophonia. Helen from Berkshire is a sufferer. She isn't, she, yeah. Yeah, I've ne- never heard of this mm. thing. Yeah. But what's the treatment? Probably just the Exposure same. Exposure therapy. Basically, yeah. It would be the uh, same it is for any kind of phobia, yeah. Is it? So gradual... Mm. Gradual exposure. Or, you, you, yeah, immersion's the other one, where you just subject someone to it for three hours. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Three hours. We'll of do a special. It normally doesn't work. <laughs> That's like the pure behavioural approach. If, you, if you're being cognitive, you've got to kind of um, figure out what the thoughts are behind it. Normally, it's because you think you're going to go insane, or you are insane. Right. You're not insane, Helen. No, it's a, it's, it's a phobia, is it? Is it classed as a phobia? Um, I don't know. It's called misophonia, isn't it? Phonia. Right. Rather than phobia. Misophobia. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know much about it. It's like it. a it's fear of Japanese soup. Yeah. Misophobia. Miso. Misophonia. <laughs> Miso, I love you, young time. Miss, uh, oh. Sucky, sucky, ten dollar. Googling it. Oh. Misophonia is a condition in which individuals experience intense anger and disgust when they are confronted with sounds made by other human beings. Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No bad butter. So that's not normally a uh, um, phobia. That's not a phobia, really, is it? No, no, it's something else. Yeah. A phobia it would be fear rather than disgust. Yeah. Anger. Yeah, what yeah. causes what's something that causes anger? A rage disorder. Don't make me angry. <laughs> well, I don't know actually, no, because it's, it's it's associated yeah. with avoidance. He directed the Hulk film. So don't, <laughs> don't make me angry. <laughs> we, well there's a there's a research trial here. It says the exposed patients with a symptom provoking audiovisual stimuli <laughs> to investigate brain activity of emotional responses. Yeah, so, it's, it's, so it will be. So it will be. Um, it, it will be exposure. Yes, exposure therapy. Yeah, just uh, uh, just like the tip to start with. Well, yeah, if you're doing it, if you're doing it the the graded way, yeah. Um, but otherwise, you can just always Im- do the immersion therapy. In. Yeah, yeah, that's risky. No, that's a risky. No, uh, no. Well, because you do not make them feel horrible. No, because basically, there's an underlying anxiety response that just goes away when you don't die, basically. Yeah, so, you can only be angry for so long, yeah. Well, yeah, basically. <laughs> Have you not met my missus? <laughs> <laughs> 15 years in Cowies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> next year, 20. I think will be the 2-0. Jeez. Will it? Yeah. I'm expecting oh, yeah, some sort... Stag, dude. <laughs> I'm expecting some sort of medal, some sort of award. 
the services to humanity, keeping her off the That's streets and away from other humans. Other humans, yeah. <laughs> She's like, um, she should be one of the X Men, <laughs> like an X Men villain. I thought she was. I thought she was in Marvel. Is she not the Hulkess. <laughs> she Hulk. She Hulk. Whatever. She's not green. <laughs> but yeah, don't make her angry. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah, don't make her angry. <laughs> angry. Yeah, you'll regret it. The killer of fun. The destroyer of laughs. Yeah. (laughs) Good job she never listens. (laughs) Good job she never listens to this. She would disown me. She'd say... You know what? You're a real wanker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, we've got to go soon. Steve's going to be here in in a few minutes. He did say that ten minutes ago. I'm going to make another drink. Right. Let's, Let's fuck off into the night. Okay, bye. Yeah. Wakanda forever. Appreciate it, Belong. Bye. Epstein didn't kill himself. She's lame, didn't Epstein herself. Indeed. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? I like what you got. Good job. I look like a war-hardened goblin. If you want to participate in our society fully, you got to get vaccinated. I'm too weak. Oh, don't kill me. Cut off your genitals, gouge out your eyes, die! Wayne Kerr. Boot your teacher out of Kneel before Zod. All these people have seen my baby penis. LGDP, LGT, LBT. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international over depression. Save Plotland. Brilliant. Well, it's great to meet you. Thanks yeah, for nice coming. Thanks, you. guys. Have Bye. a lovely night. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Have a good week. Bye. 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 You down for a wee? I do need a wee. I do need a wee. I can wait. All right. Yeah, I mean, I had two wees already. I this, had this, one this in is, the middle of the podcast. This yeah. is my first wee. Go for a wee, then. Before I, I do need to go. <laughs> okay. It was great. I really liked Steve.